The following podcast contains mature language and spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, we are recording. Okay, we are recording. Yeah. Good, okay. Hopefully this one will work out. Ah, fuck, hold on, I accidentally opened... Fantastic Four! Superhero! Hulk! Superhero! Spider-Man! Iron Man! Spider-Woman! So the reason why I called you here is uh, I'm trying to work on the pilot episode, and I've got nine minutes of, of material that I like. I think it sounds pretty good. It's been edited like a motherfucker, just really, really tight. Um, and it's it's the sound quality is all over the fucking place. It's I'm uh, thankfully I'm looking at the later episodes, and when we just talk and get it out of our system in a half hour talking about a subject, that seems to work the best in terms of keeping the audio quality consistent. Okay. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, with this pilot episode, I'm taking material from multiple recording sessions, uh, multiple energy levels very clearly, and uh, obviously different devices between the recorder and the Audacity program. So it's all over the damn place. But I like that nine minutes. It's good. And what it's ending up doing is each of us gets a few minutes where we're kind of just going over you know, how we got into comics. And yours I had to put together from like three different sections of different recordings to make your, your little like two to four minute section. Yeah, because I'm an idiot. Um, basically, it's creating the spiral. He's been doing that ever oh. since he fucking got here, man. Let me call okay. the shots on this. Why aren't you doing it the way I want to do it even though we haven't discussed it in weeks? What? You. Okay, let's go. Okay, we are going. for school. <clears throat> okay. So we're going to try to do this podcast thing, right? Okay. Okay. So I prefer to be anonymous. I don't trust people on the internet. People on the internet are crazy people. So I have a modest internet presence. Uh, you only pretty much do the Twitter and you are completely incognito. But I still want you guys to use... Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook. We have a drink. Well, okay, well, okay. So we'll get to that. So anyway, I'm Diablo Frank and I have a bunch of DC-related blogs. And I also troll some podcasts, particularly the Fire and Water podcast, which is pretty much what I'm known for is trolling them. So I want to do my own podcast, and you guys aren't really out there with the kind of people that will be listening to this, as, as we've already discussed, correct. Matt. Okay, that is correct. So anyway, so I'm forcing you guys to take on aliases, and we're going to try our best to actually stick with that. Okay. I'm Diablo Frank, or just Frank, Ill mach- Illegal Machine, or Mac, and Mr. Fix-It, or Fix. Now I'm going to start with you, Mac, because you got to kind of introduce yourself. No, leave them alone. They're fine. So my first question to you is, how did you get into comic books? Um, you know what? That's a good question. But I don't remember. We lived in northern Arizona for a while. My family lived in Flagstaff, Arizona. There was a comic book store there. Strike Zone was the name of the comic book store slash baseball card shop. And I was going in there originally for baseball cards and eventually made my way into the second room, which contained comic books. And I just got some cheapos and went from there. Now, did you get into comics before your brother did? Might have been around the same time. No, I think that we just hung around the same places and then... And he because he always kind of went off and did his own thing. If you're yeah. both there, he's going to find some stuff. Yeah, and if he and I collected the same stuff, you can mm-hmm. kind of probably infer that. But we never collected it. No, no, I, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. even trying to say that. I know you guys better than that. You said you bought some cheapy comics. Do you remember what the first books you tried to pick up on were? No way. I know it's weird. That I don't remember what comic books I read with first. I should clarify that we went through some family stuff. So I actually ended up, I don't have those comics anymore. So whereas normally, if I were actually still in my possession, probably a little, a little easier to remember. I don't have them anymore, which is why I don't remember them. I remember that 
I think one of the first comics I bought was a Superman comic, oddly enough, because I do not like Superman. But I remember seeing it on a rack in a... It was a stop-and-go-ish style gas station. Bent to hell, because it was one of those spinning metal racks. I want to say... You'll probably know. I don't know if it was Superman... The cover was basically like a red sun exploding and his almost like silhouette in front of it. I know if, if I would it, Was it after Rain? Rain and the Superman? After he got... Did he have the mullet? He, no. It may not... It may... When, was he when, deformed when was in some way? It may have even been... Mm, it's not coming to me. I can picture it in my head, but I can't, you know, describe it. Can you think of the artist? Oh, good lord, no. Okay. I mean, I assume it was Jurgens, right? I assume okay. it was Dan Jurgens, but that's only because of the Superman in the early, mid-90s, so... That was probably the first comic book I ever bought. So, yeah. That, what possessed you? I, I don't know. I have no idea. Oh, the Lost Collection? That's one of the things that stands out, too, is that we had those... What was that terrible Spider-Man miniseries where they put those refractive covers on? They were all. It was like they were, one was a red, one was a green, one was a blue, and it had the webbing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know with the hologram. In the yeah, middle. yeah, in the center. Right, right. So I, I remember those. I remember I had that complete. Those I don't know how it was four or five whatever, um, and those were gone. And then it's so weird that all, all my memories of these comics were all characters that I hate because I don't, I'm not a huge Spider-Man fan. Mister Fix It. Do you remember when you started reading comic books? Mm, I didn't think you were going to do this kind of questioning. Okay. Because uh, I, I, I didn't I just guess, ask somebody immediately before you. Yeah, but I thought we were going, on, going right into books. I didn't know we were doing a fucking bio. Um, mm-hmm. I guess my first book was a G.I. Joe comic. Mm-hmm. So what about, would you me. say... 87? 87, okay. Yeah, about 86, Now, was, was it, did you get it in 87, or was it actually from that time period? I'm going to interrupt. Time period. I'm going to interrupt. Yeah. The next comment is from Count Dracula. Another great episode, guys, which is weird to say after episode one. I agree. He says, whatever. I'm a huge Namor fan, but I have always seen him more as a foil, either as a romantic rival or an outright villain, than a hero deserving of his own title. I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, and I love the green Speedo costume. We disagree. It takes a special brand of cockiness and... And this is one word hyphenated. Don't give a fuckness. Um, much respect to that hyphenated word to walk around in it. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I like how he's able to work cockiness and tight green speedo into one sentence. Um, I wasn't going to go there, but you did. And I personally, I, I don't mind the green speedo outfit. I, I do think the black suit is cool too. It just it, this is a guy who needs to be resold to the public, and I don't think the green speedo is going to do that. But I don't personally have any problems with it. Oh yeah, I mean if if yeah the, the green the green speedo is probably normal to us because we've been looking at it for our entire comic book reading lives. But there's no way that green speedo should be making it onto any sort of film camera television anything i don't know they've been having to work hard to make sure that the marvel heroes get at least one topless scene per movie so if you got a guy that came that way naturally you could exploit it uh no do not want <laughs> speedo it's sort of scaly speedo it don't work i guess you don't want green scales around anybody's genitals it just um, conjures up some no, more imagery no that uh that sounds like a episode of house if house was on hbo that i would go <laughs> They've got some ailment. What's your ailment? I have green scales <laughs> around my crotchal area. area. Yeah. Yeah. And my God, please. The other – think of the children for the Halloween costumes. Thank you. Oh, okay. Yeah, you won that argument just now. Oh, my gosh. My thing is bigger. Hey, you don't have to shout. <laughs> 
what is it with fucking Rick Jones? He's always like a decade behind. He's a like a beatnik in the '60s. He's a fucking '70s BJ and the Bear motherfucker in the '80s. He's always behind the times. It's always so grating. He's deep, we, anyway. Carry on. Hey, excuse that. me. Okay. <laughs> All the growling you hear is just my penis. Heavy metal was our porn in the oh, yes, day. Oh, yeah, much so. And I bought many at Walgreens. They never carted. <laughs> yeah. God bless Walgreens. And them little blue old ladies. You notice they polybag, polybag it now. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah kind I, of a drag. I still open them up on this shit. <laughs> you know, we would go there, and of course, you would always hope that someone had opened a Playboy and dropped it behind the Lowrider magazine or something. So I flipped through it. It was kind of interesting. So I read the G.I. Joe, got into it. My family was kind of like, cool, you're, you're reading something, so why don't you keep reading them? So I would... I would get a dollar here or there, and I'd go buy some comics. I really didn't get, I didn't really get immersed into comics until I have a, a step uncle who was, he's kind of a, he looks like John Belushi, thinks like Jim Morrison, really weird, you know, oversexed everything. I remember he came to a family event and he had a third planet bag. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, these are comics. And he, you know, pulled them out. And that's when I saw my first X-Men comic. He even had uh, two, two hot girls one horny night or some kind of adult comic oh in yeah it. yeah the Graph or the Eros book yeah, yeah Eros book so he had all this stuff in his bag and so I started reading them I would say like I, I, I sporadically read comics but like you remember back in the day at Stop and Go you would go up there yeah. and you were lucky if they had back to back to back to issues mm-hmm. so I would buy Spider-Man's but I always had huge gaps for it to really hook me was never there mm-hmm. I would read, you know, you read this great Green Goblin story arc, and you couldn't find two missing parts. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't go to comic shops. I remember I used to buy my ex- back issues at Grumpy's. Mm-hmm. You remember Grumpy's? Yeah, they the video those, store, right? Yeah, they yeah. had those comic boxes in the center. Mm-hmm. So I would go in there and I'd buy them. God, they had comic. When was this about? Was that the early nineties? Was this like yeah, the early nineties? Yeah. Okay. Di- okay, so okay, well, then I say I, I guess I would say like eighty eight, eighty nine. Mm-hmm. That's when Grumpy's would have comics. I've never seen like all kinds of old comics there, and you know, and they sold them dirt cheap. So we'd rent our movies. I'd grab a couple of comics, and that was kind of our Friday night at my mm-hmm. house, so my mom could keep an eye on us. Every once in a while, I would go up to drive up to the city, and I would go up to uh, Phoenix Comics or Bedrock. No, Bed- oh, no, no, Third Planet. Even then, my dad would take us, kind of like to shut us up. So yeah, so I was reading next one for quite a while. I think, and of course, we would go to Nams, but I went more to Nams just to like because those dudes were really fucking weirded out. It was just kind of cool to walk in there. <laughs> well, that's it's why like, you call it Nams in the first place instead of Nams. Is it, I, dude? It reminds me of Vietnam, dude. I walk in there, I walk into Viet, dude. It's like they're still stuck in the 60s. The scary part is I went, I took some friends there not too long ago, and there's you and me there, dude. Like, there's literally two guys. That's why I the shop. There. I did not want to be the guy who was in the shop in his 60s. I saw that shit. Probably I was like, 40s. oh, my God. It would have been a murder-suicide pact. I would have done that for you, my friend. So. Well, I mean, every damn comic shop in this town is run by guys who used to shop with me now. I can't go to any of these shops without running into my former customers. So it it's... I didn't want to. I wanted to break vicious cycle. Is Phoenix still around? No, that closed up a long time yeah, ago. It closed up a As a matter of fact, I bought one of the Avengers Essentials intended to give to you, and you just weren't interested in it. I showed it to you at one point, and so it's just been sitting on my shelf because I picked it up for. I think they were selling it for like half off everything or less than half off. I think it was. I was so. everything. Yeah, but that was. Was that even? Had my shop closed by that point? No, your shop was still. Around. So I was still open when they Phoenix, closed. Okay. Phoenix closed. Ooh, was that? Dude, Phoenix closed like. In the mid '90s. No, I wasn't that far back. There was, it was, two, it was, there was two. It was, it was early 2000s. I would say. Are you sure? Because it was two. Yeah. Of them. No, there was two. I, honestly, I think. Yeah, honestly, I think it was after my shop closed. When I think about it, you're talking about the Phoenix that was over there in the Montrose area. Oh, there was, two of them. There was okay. one in Montrose area, and there was one over there off of. Uh, uh, Buffalo Speedway. Well, I think what, didn't, what, what Mac like meant, si- didn't we have one that was like a, had a sign that yeah, somebody we made that sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Which uh, one was that one? Which that was the one on uh, Buffalo Speedway. Okay, that was run That's by the, the one that I'd ever been. Yeah, to, so I, I, that was run by the two lesbians. That's well, all I can remember about that one. <laughs> well, of course, they were. 
<laughs> but the one that we went to, it was, I think it was next to like the Witch's Cauldron, one of those. No, that is the Witch's Cauldron. That's where the building's at. Okay, but because that's they, the last one to close, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I literally, I have some comics from whenever Phoenix was closing your right. I remember we, we, we went there one time because everything was liquidated. Mm-hmm. And we were buying like a bunch of back issues because all their comics were like 50 cents and the trades were half off. Yeah, that's, so yeah. Well, then of course you had all these little months. small shops too, like New Horizon. I remember when New Horizon mm-hmm. was around, I used to go buy books there. Well, and I bought books from the same guy who ran New Horizons when it was a satellite store for Third Planet really? in the late 80s. Uh, he ran that. I didn't realize it was the same guy until years later. Mark? And I met him again. No, oh, it was, yeah, I think it was, it was I think, no, he was yeah, a Mike, I think. He rem- no, he, he was a Mike. No, he was Mark. I remember his name was Mark because he reminded me of Mark the Commander. Remember that old CBS show where the guy would draw on the spaceships and stuff? I think he came out and uh, That show was awesome. Okay. Very influential in me as a, as a young kid who loved to so did I do. draw. Because well, he did that. He did the eyes coming out of the the, the holes or whatever. And he had the main drawing that every episode he would add a little bit to. Yeah. And be, oh, okay. God. This dude looked exactly like Captain Mark except without the uniform. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, and so, well, for me, my, like I guess my uncle introduced me. I was reading like Saber. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Saber? Yeah, Don McGregor and Paul Galassi. Uh, uh, and and uh, Billy Billy um, Graham did that for a while too, didn't he? The guy did Black Panther. I, I didn't back then. I didn't keep up with the writers. It was okay. more about the artwork for me. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Though Billy Graham was the artist, and of course Saber looked like Jimi Hendrix. So I was like, oh, I, I, mean, mm-hmm. I already love the music. Got the guy go with it. Where first it's, uh, it's for a short introduction, then it comes back around again for a longer uh, section where we talk more in depth about our characters and such. Okay. Talk loose. It's not like I own the damn character. Yeah, you do. For the purposes of this podcast, you do own the character. You're you're the ambassador. Does that make sense? Yeah, he's your spirit animal. What got you into the Hulk? Oh, the TV show, dude. Used to come on with Channel Thirty Nine, wasn't it? I, I don't recall. I remember seeing it as a kid. I want to say twenty six, but I can't say you, for you're certain. Probably right. It's probably twenty six. Yeah. Not would always watch the Hulk on there, and it. I remember one time. And but I, well, when would that be time wise? That would have been in the eighties and the nineties. Yeah, mid eighties. The cartoon, the early eighties cartoon. The one that came on after Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man that, Amazing one, that one was really well because it was Savage Hulk. It was angry great Hulk. theme too. Yeah. I, I was li- looking to when I was doing the, the the intro song for the podcast. Yeah. I was listening to that, and that was one of the best theme songs. Yeah. I really wish they hadn't taken away from when it. I, it was so ominous. I have it was like a horror movie. Well, there's funny because I have the bootleg one and so I was watching it and I forgot how dark some of those stories are there's one where he's fighting I guess an android type character and he smashes his body to the point where it's only the head and then the head grows legs and starts crawling away from him <laughs> and he goes after trying to stomp it I'm just like god now the one that was really really dark was the one that came out in the 90s do you remember that one that one was very psychological it reminded me if you recall on Batman the Animated Series they didn't have Two-Face come out immediately they built up to the introduction mm-hmm. of Two-Face and it showed a lot of surrealistic imagery of Harvey Dent slowly going mad it struck me that the opening sequence to that Incredible Hulk mirrored that, and there was a lot of the Peter David stuff, especially the second season intro. Once they got She Hulk and the Great Hulk and all yeah. the other guys over there, they put a lot of that psychological stuff into that second series. Well, actually, you turned me more onto the Hulk because you introduced me to Peter David. If I remember so correctly, so you, you actually weren't collecting the Hulk before you were coming to the. I, the I would, but it was always the Jeff Purvis artwork. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that was even that was still Peter David though. I mean, the early stuff was okay, but it was very, you know, it's it's early. Well, for me, Hulk was the book that you got stuck with. Like, if I were trading comics with my friends, I always, the, the, the things you hated were Commandi, pretty much anything Kirby, Devil Dinosaur, yeah. 2001, well, and no, those but, Hulks, because everything, Hulk was about the freak of the month. He was always fighting a harpy or some oh, yeah. stupid crap like that, and it was monotonous, it was repetitive, it was, it was formulaic. Well, I, I hated the Hulk back then. I think then. I read a couple, I mean, I, I always liked the character and the idea behind the character. Well, could be, probably from the familiarity, because yeah. you've been seeing the show, and you, show, you were a fan of the show, and you just received yeah. that reflecting in the comics. Okay, so why the Hulk? <laughs> okay, Walter Cronkite? No, I think you, you turned me on to him when uh, you showed me those 
was a well, of course, the cartoons and stuff. But when you showed me the comics, Peter David stuff, it's really because I remember I read earlier Hulk stuff, and as a kid, you know, we just saw the intros to uh, three different decades of the Hulk, and uh, I pretty much watched all three of them. Well, like most kids, you know, it's the advertising that gets you the character, but you don't really know the backstory. I knew some of the backstory from the cartoons. I did buy some of the comic, and I mean, they were okay. I mean, they weren't. Artwork was always great. Shima was awesome, but if you read one Hulk story, you got the gist of the next six issues. They didn't really stretch the character. Not until about Peter David got it. I think the first one I ever bought was at a Walgreens. I don't know if you remember, you could buy three comics in a plastic bag. Oh, sure. Yeah. I grew up on that. I think the early 90s was probably the tail end of them bothering to do that. I always liked the Hulk. I was more drawn to the character because I just liked the aspect of someone normal turning into this incredible beast that was a force of nature. I don't know. I just started reading that stuff. As a child, though, the appeal was the intensity the or the power or what, what was it that drew you in? My God complex at its finest. No. <laughs> he's a unique character in that he's scary. Well, he's he a rebel. A, because he's a force of nature, because he's going to cause destruction even without trying, you know, whether it's because he's been distracted by the military or he's on some sort of rage fest, but he's going to blow everything apart that gets in his way when he's in a horrible state of mm-hmm. mind. So was it that intimidation factor, that fierceness, or was it the outlet for rage, sort of like, because I know Wolverine kind of supplanted Hulk in some ways as a guy who embodied anger and rage. Yeah. You like Wolverine okay. I know you were, were you a huge fan of Wolverine. Nah, I mean, I enjoy. I mean, it was, he was fun in the beginning, but then when he, get, when he saturated the market, he just kind of... Uh, I mean, I, it's after a while, like it'll Wolverine literally did, did everything. I just finished reading Jason Aaron's run on uh, Wolverine and the X Men, where he's a professor, mm-hmm. he's a teacher. Right. So it's kind of like, yeah, he's pretty much done everything. I like the concept that the other half, that dark part of your mind that you don't, that you keep so wrapped up and tight and quiet, you, that that voice you don't express, all of a sudden was embodied in him, and then I don't, not only him, but it had power, it was stronger than him. And so you had the, like, I guess your id personality was at full swing, full power, gimme, 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 do, do, do. And so it was kind of cool to read something where most characters were very reserved. You knew, you knew they were probably thinking something, but they would never act it out. And the Hulk was the opposite. He acted out what nobody else would do or say. I guess that was really what drew me to him. So it was the psychological texture. Yeah, like always. This guy had more layers and more depths. Oh yeah, and that's and, and Peter and David. Ability too, I'd imagine, oh, yeah. right? Because I mean, you don't know what's you don't even know which Hulk you're going to get on. Well, that's, and that's what I said that I really liked with Peter David is, of course, you had all the different Hulks. You might have a run of Dumb Hulk and then Grey Hulk and then Fix It, you know, the Reverse Hulk or Smart Hulk. So it was always different. It, it never really got boring. Well, and one thing that's good, too, is with a lot of heroes, they'll have the superficial change. Here's a black costume. Oh, you're no longer work for the government. Yeah. And a lot of times they, they'll only play that out in the short term. You get the sense that, okay, this is going to go on for a story arc or so. Maybe this will go for a year and then it's done. Where with Peter David, when he would make a turn, not only was it a natural turnabout, it wasn't something that was forced by editorial fiat or something, mm-hmm. But you had no idea how long he'd play that out. You know, he could go for years and years. You have whole eras within the Peter David run. As a kid, I remember in high school when we had to read books, one of my favorite mandatory readings was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That resonates big time in the Hulk book, you know, the whole dual personality. And, of course, that leads back into the thing where I enjoyed the psychological. I really did enjoy story arcs where it had to do more what was going on in the Hulk's mind, this constant battling with himself. I actually own that page where you have Joe Fixit, the Savage Hulk, and Banner all on the head, and they're trying to keep the Savage Hulk locked behind the door. Oh, they I don't love want... that, where he's pounding yeah. and they're both kind of freaked out. And they're trying, they're putting, cha- or they're holding the door, trying. So that was a cool thing about Banner was 
you never knew what Hulk you were going to get. So that's like, you know, like you said, in the Marvel Universe, everyone kind of knew their role. Mr. Fantastic, Iron Man, Cap, everybody had their roles, and they were going to stick to them. They might deviate a little bit from it, they're, but they were like pretty the much... They're like ice cream, occasionally throw nuts on it, occasionally throw women in, but it's still the same. Yeah. You could literally push him to the point where he was a villain at some points in his life. I mean, when he was Joe Fixit, he really was a villain. He wasn't a good guy. He didn't do nice things. I mean, he... Yeah, that, <laughs> but, yeah. You know, it, I mean, there's many a picture, or there's many artwork of Hulk laying there with multiple women. And they've they've played that story up even into the Ultimate Hulk. Well, you know, it does play into the Hulk more than a lot of other characters. True, and it's and it's not like suave, debonair Tony Stark libido. It's this base animal, oof, you know. Yeah. Okay, you went backwards once you got into Peter David. How much further back did you go? Trimp. Herb Trimp. Herb Trimp. Okay. I got about halfway through his world. I never okay, read the so wait, first. So you go back to like I got into the '70s stuff, and that was more of the. Kind of like the TV show. They were all more based off of that. Um, which, which live action? Running from the military. The, yeah, the military okay. chasing them. So and more like the 80s and 90s cartoons then. Even the 70s, yeah. Even the 70s one. They, they were all kind of... Well, I think the 80s was more based on the, that run of comics. It, they didn't really run into any kind of fantastic stories or whatever. You know, he's going into the microverse and stuff like that till later on. And I was, so you go back to the seventies, but you didn't touch the sixties tales of Stan. No, not really. No, I, like I said, I've I've read an issue here and there, and it just wasn't my cup of tea. It was it's just not for me. And did you ever read the? You know, I never really read the Hulk. My association with the Hulk is that on all the trading cards, anything, it was always the Hulk was the ten. For strength, all the other maxed out statistics, they're always usually these. You You're know. talking about like I think it was the Marvel Universe series two that did the bars, right? Showed the number, right. And then later on, you had overpower. Well, and even then, even just like when you have any sort of big, you know, giant, strong character, he's always compared against the Hulk. All of them, it's like, oh man, yeah, he's super strong. But is he as strong as the Hulk? Like Hercules. Oh, Hercules is super strong. Really? Is he as strong as the Hulk? Like that's always yeah. the go-to is, yeah. is he as strong as the Hulk? He's the benchmark. Right. It, but but really, aside from maybe Mr. Fantastic's intelligence, you normally don't compare the humanoid superheroes. There's always something greater and stronger. Whereas the Hulk always seemed to, even when he was out doing like space adventures, it was still like the Hulk still trashing on dudes with his strength. So I always thought that was... That's always the, like I said, just, well, but is he as strong as the Hulk? So to me, he's always just been the benchmark. He's one of those benchmark characters where Mr. Fantastic is the same way. Well, is he smart as Mr. Fantastic? It's always, is he as strong as the Hulk? Yeah. Whereas even like Tony Stark, Tony Stark's smart, but then there's a, like, he's not Mr. Fantastic. Like, he's not building. Well, he's an engineer. He's not right. a polymath like. Richard right, Richard. exactly. So so he's just, you know, so, you know, Captain America doesn't have any of those that are all the way. He, he doesn't have that well, he's the defining fighter. trait. He, there aren't really a lot of guys that can fight as well as Captain America. Sure, sure. I, I mean, that's true. But, you know, fighting skill is more of uh, ambiguous a, where it's just flat out. It's not as measurable as you, right. the whole can bench press so many tons. Nobody else can go that high. So you know how that is. Uh, Reed Richards' IQ is 250 for yeah. something along those lines. Right. So you can measure that. Where with fighting skill, it's like, well, how's he doing this month? You yeah. know, it's like an athlete. You know, you have a top athlete. You know, Michael Jordan was one of the top basketball players forever, but you wouldn't want to try to bring him in today and against anybody, really. Probably right. most everybody would run circles around him. Right. So, I mean, I, I never read a lot of Hulk, but it, but if Hulk ever crossed over into someone's book, you'd always flip through it. 
because you're like, oh, that means that they're throwing down with the Hulk. And you always wanted to see how someone was going to do against the Hulk. So there's always that. His reputation always preceded him. So even though his book was never very, never the most popular, um, although I, I would say probably the David Banner television series, that's probably the most successful of any superhero TV series outside of a Batman. Right? Talking about like live action? Yeah. Not an apples to apples comparison because people don't watch TV like they did in the 70s. Really since cable. Yeah. Honestly, the television peaked in the late 70s, early 80s in terms of audience. And then with cable, it started to disperse. So I, like uh, lately they've been doing a lot of talking about Seinfeld because it's the 25th anniversary. And Seinfeld in its first season was about 14 in the ratings, like the 14th rating, which means that it is multiple times higher than Walking Dead or anything else. Right. Anything that's not rated today is a, it's a fly on back on what Seinfeld was. So, but yeah, in terms of audience share, Incredible Hulk. I can't. I've never told thinking of a show that was that successful that lasted long. In fact, The Incredible Hulk got Wonder Woman canceled. Oh really? Yeah, they were both on the same network, CBS. And CBS was the Tiffany Network. They always held, thought highly of themselves. And because they had two popular shows that were superhero-based, they started to get this reputation of being the superhero network. And they canceled one not because of low ratings, but because they didn't want that image. Mm-hmm. And I think the Hulk only lasted so long after one of them was canceled. How long did live-action Batman, Adam West Batman? That's the thing. It was pretty short. That, well, and, and that's actually so maybe not good as long I'm, as I thought. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I had forgotten about Batman yet. Batman at his peak. Would be kills everything. To touch. Yeah, it kills yeah. everything. But that was something that burned very brightly for a short period of time. Because if I recall correctly, they were actually running two episodes per week. Mm-hmm. They would do it, what was it, like Tuesdays and Thursdays, mm-hmm. and they'd do the cliffhangers. So they, that's why they have something like 100, what is it, 120 episodes total? But they'd burn through all that in three years. They managed to get that high in three years because yeah. of the, the scheduling. And that third year, the ratings were just a toilet. It was, have it you just, ever it, seen it, the it Batman movie? Up. Oh, that, actually, that movie was a lot of fun. I, I used Dude, to watch he it used shark. What was that? Back shark repellent. See, but that's the thing. You <laughs> spray it or whatever. Are down or you're not? Oh no 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 no! Don't get me wrong. I love Batman. Batman is probably. In, I don't in, know about the character. The, I'm about the show. Do you love the show? Though? Um, Do you love the movies? Because I, I that's well, a good point. That's well, it doesn't matter point. if you loved it or not. I mean, you can recognize but that's iconic. People still do the zap pow punching, and that was that's from the TV show. That's not from the comic. That's from the TV show. No, somewhat from the comic. But no, the because because when they're doing it live action and yeah, doing well, the pows with the live action, to me that is that's what I think of whenever I hear somebody go, "Oh, it's like Batman zap pow bing." That's what I think. I yeah. think of the live action. To me, I think you know, like even Family Guy did the. the Bruce Banner hitchhiking or David oh, yeah. Banner oh, hitchhiking yeah. oh, you know right. with that Stewie that's Bruce Banner and, and the theme you know what I mean uh, to me there are no other live action superhero anythings that kind of have the resonance that that Hulk had unless I'm com- just completely missing I think Wonder Woman's up there yeah well everybody um, knows the theme yeah. as far as specifics of the show probably not so much we have an image of Linda Carter typically uh, probably a lot of images burn into people's minds from the opening like the Sydney animated opening sequence and then the, the shows themselves, I think, are just... Probably nobody remembers. Any, it's, yeah. it's uh, I remember her running away from the camera quite a bit. That uh, back shot. Uh, yeah. You might remember that. Just but, to... they, but you did bring up a good point, too. Another one of the big ones was Adventures of Superman, the George Reeves series. That was still running when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys ever watched that at all. Nope. I'm not going to say that Christopher Reeve wasn't my Superman, because of course he was. Well, but I also finally remember the George Reeves, because I grew up on that as well. But I, I, uh, I, I, think, and I think that just makes my point even more, the right? Right now, we're talking about the Incredible Hulk next to Superman and Batman. Oh, absolutely. Which, uh, I mean, everybody knows the Hulk, but we all know the Incredible Hulk ain't Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. He's, right. he's just not. So, in terms of its global recognition. And and, and to, uh, as far as characters in a television show in the 80s, how would you think the Hulk would, you know, like, you wouldn't even think nowadays, well, you got to have CGI to do the Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, that was awesome. Yeah. So you wouldn't even think a show like the Hulk would even work back then. 
it's it that was much more difficult to pull off than just you know Batman in a suit, cheesy looking suit, or even Superman in a suit with some cheesy uh, flying you know, flying effect. Well, yeah, the George Reeves stuff does not hold up pretty well. If you try to watch it a day, everything is better than that. Yeah, even I, Smallville holds up pretty well compared to Superman. Yeah, but see, like I think Smallville kind of just I think Smallville was hot when it was hot, but I don't think anybody really remembers Smallville anymore. You know? Yeah. But I mean, that, that, that could that could go back to what you were saying. Just audiences are were smaller, so there's fewer people to remember it today. I, I don't know. Well, then, I, 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 I think just, it just ran too long. I think it burned through a lot of its goodwill by the end of it. I, I just think when you actually think about it, there were a, there have been a lot more superhero live action television shows. Those to me are the big two: Batman and, and Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Uh, to me, those are the big two, and everybody else is kind of kind of behind. And again, I could totally be spacing on one that I'm just completely not remembering. But well, uh, we touched on a lot of really strong ones. People, ones that very much penetrated the consciousness. And there's a lot of shows that are fairly popular, like things like Arrow, but it's popular in a specific demographic, a yeah. a few million people, and you're talking about a world that's grown good, good deals since yeah. the late 70s. Yeah. So it's this tiny little niche where the whole, at least in the United States, was big. I'm sure that got... Well, it had to do with the branding, too. I think the branding of the characters helps a lot. Well, there, and there were a lot of toys. There was yeah. a lot of little penetration. With the whole, that's why they kept doing cartoons. X-Men took a while before people started paying attention to it, even though it was the biggest thing throughout the 80s, because everybody had grown up recognizing the icons of Marvel, the Spider-Man, Captain America, the Hulk, Iron Man, the people that really had yeah. well, and, and, not even really Iron Man. Iron Man had the cartoon. I'm not trying to. No, I know. Iron Man, Iron Man, Man not had that kind of No, no way. And and I mean, Lou Ferrigno is a, a national treasure for God's sake, and it's it's off of that show. So just stuff like that to me. That we were at Conclusa lines for Lou Ferrigno were pretty freaking stout. Yeah. For someone who hasn't really done more than you know silly guest appearances, but even then he's still getting guest appearances on TV shows and sitcoms today, based on stuff he did in the '80s for the Incredible Hulk TV show. So that's what I'm saying. I, there's just nothing else that does that. Flash Gordon doesn't really count. I guess Flash Gordon's oh, no, got some pulp stuff that, to yeah, it. No, but that's way past. That's, but that doesn't really count. He's a superhero, right? And that was not a very successful movie. That's one of those things that I think that's the power of K. Flash. Wait, 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 wait. Are we talking about the Queens? Yeah. Flash Gordon. Oh, come on now. That's a classic. No. What happened is people who grew up in a certain period of time who got to adopt cable fairly early watched the shit out of Flash Gordon because they played the shit out of it on cable and that's why that, that movie has meaning to that generation of Gen Xers and maybe yeah really Gen Xers I don't even think Gen Y would touch that the, the millennials I, I don't think they have that as a touchstone if they remember Flash Gordon what they're doing is they're reciting another show referencing something to do with okay, that, that's, or, or that's actually in my movie collection like that's one of my tops yeah but that was a movie it didn't do great when it first came out and there's just this generation of people who Grew up on it and love it for that. That's what you call it a cult hit. Like, yeah, and, and like a cult, a cult, a cult you know? hit, hit would count. It had to be popular. Like Hulk was popular yeah. at the time. You know, well, what I mean? well, I it, had, it didn't have to get rediscovered. It was good from jump. Well, like I remember in junior. Well, of course, I think I was in junior high. Like when the Hulk movies would come out and everybody get excited. Like the Hulk and the Thor movie back then. That was like a big deal, and it was funny well, because I watched every one of those movies on the first broadcast. Yeah. I had to see that. That was hot shit because they'll. Kids will never understand the hunger you had as a comic book fan for anything yeah. live action and adaptation. You didn't have that kind of stuff. Before Batman, yes, please give me a TV movie with some guy dressed in a pseudo Viking gear and he's got a nerdy scientist that's basically a sidekick because we're completely fucking up the continuity of the comic books. But at least Thor was in a movie and he was actually kind of good. Well, the time. let's not forget Adventures of Babysitting, too. Vincent Onofrio, yeah. Thor. That was, a, that was another uh, yeah. big one. That's a good way of tiding it together, too, because you had the, the whole movie with. 
Daredevil of the Hulk movie with Thor, and then Vincent D'Onofrio played Thor in Adventures of Babysitting, pseudo, sort of, kind of, and now he's going to be playing the Kingpin in the Netflix Daredevil series. Holy cow, you just blew my mind That's out. That's why we have Frank around. It's too, it's too late. You've been franked. <laughs> you got franked. You got franked. <laughs> oh my gosh. Where did the Hulk touch you? One thing I want to ask you, too, is Mr. Joe Fix-It or just Mr. Fix-It? Joe Fix-It. Joe or Fix? Joe Fix-It. And then just go Fix-It. No, that's what I'm no. saying. Though. No. We were doing Fix last time. Would you rather Joe? Oh, Fix-It. No, Fix-It. Do you like Fix? fix well, I've been saying Fix, not Fix-It. Yeah. Fix-It sounds like we're clanking clack on NPR, so <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. So Fix, then. I'll try to think. Yeah, it goes fix. We'll be fine for now. No, fix We've it. We've already been saying fix. That's what we were saying. Uh, no, he's saying fix it. I think fix it sounds better. Joe? Fix it? No. I'm telling you, it sounds like something from like some home repair show. Fix? But you can just call someone fix. But why not? I, I did I, for the entire I, previous show. And it sounded fucking terrible, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever. So, fix or Joe? Well, I'm not Joe. Because <laughs> okay. people like, oh, so your name must be Jose, and they just call you Joe on the side. Like, no. Shh. <laughs> you want to Jose Fixit? Senior Jose Fixit? Let me guess, mechanic? <laughs> <laughs> Just call me Senior Bob. No, fuck no. no. Senior Bob. Well, we'll continue on with Fix, and then you can pretend in your mind that we're saying Fix it. The earliest example of pulps would actually be The Penny Dreadful of 19th Century England, which was a little novel geared toward the masses, the, the lower classes. It had very sensationalized fictional pieces. Those were ported over to the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the form of dime novels. There was a heavy emphasis on westerns there. From that point, you get what we consider the actual pulps, which were rough-hewn, black and white, sort of like dime novels, or they were digest-sized magazines. Sometimes they had illustrations, but they tended to be sparse in that regard. They were referred to pulps because of how cheap the paper stock was, but also the content was very low rent. You would take something like H.G. Wells or Mary Shelley, and you would dumb it down into its most basic and most accessible elements. The pulps also trafficked heavily in what we now call genre. A lot of detective stories, just like general adventure stories, vigilante tales, period pieces, often set western times, war stories. They had early science fantasy, I would hesitate to call what was in the pulp science fiction they usually weren't that thoughtful more often it would be say medieval fantasy tropes rocket ships laser pistols lightsabers that sort of thing they would do horror and also they did what you could call spicy or saucy tales which was basically spank material the pulps were very popular from early 20th century up until around the late 30s as radio and motion pictures gained prominence and accessibility people started to gear more towards them Martin Goodman had been in the pulps since 1932. One of the pulps he had put out was Kazar the Great, which was your prototypical Tarzan knockoff. It only lasted for three issues. Toward the end of the 30s, Frank Topi, sales manager for Funnies Incorporated, was going from publisher to publisher, trying to talk people into carrying more comic books. He, uh, Funnies Incorporated was the comic studio that we've discussed in previous episodes, where they were packaging whole comic books for publishers, and basically they had the content, they just needed to find somebody to pay them for it and get it out into distribution. So here you had Kazar who 
was created and written for prose by Bob Byrne. He was a star of uh, three issues of the Pulp magazine, which were published by Martin Goodman's Manvis Publication Incorporated, dating in late 1936. The first story was King of Fang and Claw. That story was loosely adapted into comic form in 1939 by Ben Thompson, who essentially serialized that first pulp into five chapters in Marvel Mystery Comics, and then continued from there with new adventures. Oh, boy. Okay. I thought we were going to talk about other stuff. We are, but this is the pilot. Yeah. So the idea is to get us introduced as as people, you know, who are a group who are talking about comics, to spend time talking about the characters that are sort of like our icon characters that we're tied into, and uh, also I want to get that Marvel Comics number one stuff in the mix, and ideally a little bit of the Submariner cartoon commentary as well, and then that's our first episode, and that's done. Okay, I hit the record button again. Okay. So, um... God, I hate being the moderator. I was going to try to point it at one of you guys. It didn't work out that way. All right. In this, week's, way. in this week's edition of Marvel Super No, 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 no. no. You got to kind of the dan 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 and then it cuts, and then you start. Just like if you were picking it up. Like, welcome to the Marvel Universe podcast. Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah, I just yeah. did. No, you didn't. Welcome to the Marvel Superheroes podcast. Thank you. I'm oh, mo- sorry. Well, okay, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking to you. I'm... Welcome to the Superhero podcast. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, the other thing, too, is we're covering... Is going to be episode two? No, this is going to be at, at number one. Okay, all right. All right. The one. Chromium cover. Okay. The, the, we're going to cover Marvel Comics number one. We're going to talk about Submariner, the Human Torch, and the Angel. And we're going to talk about current Marvel news. So I'm just putting that in your head, and then you can go from there. Okay. Welcome to the Marvel Superhero Podcast. This Thank is, you. No, it's Marvel Superheroes. The Marvel Superheroes Podcast. Okay. Welcome to the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. I will be your moderator this evening, Illegal Machine. And with me are Diablo Frank, Mr. Fixit, and Mr. Fixit. That's right. Um, in this episode, we're going to cover three things for the most part, and that's going to be we each have read portions of Marvel Comics number one from 1939, and we're going to give our impressions of that. Figured that would be an appropriate way to kick off a podcast about Marvel superheroes, um, and then we're going to from there move on to I forgot our current Marvel news. From there, we're going to move on to current Marvel news. We'll also talk a little bit about the cartoon, I think. Uh, that's right. We also watched the Marvel... Blah, blah, blah. It's the Marvel superheroes. We're trying to drop as many we're quitting the podcast as we can. We just gave up. We're going to get nothing but filler from here on out. Marvel hero from the late 30s, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's sort of his original claim to fame. Along, yeah, he technically along with, actually predated Marvel. We're right. right. Marvel, it, was timely, it was timely, right? We'll come back to and then from there, he's just some schmo that pops up in Fantastic Four all the time. So, did you ever read any Submariner comics growing up? Um, no, I mean, I, I know he crossed over Iron Man a couple times. I, I'm sure I've read some Submariner comics. There's no way I haven't read Submariner comics, but I just don't care. Well, he's trying to be an Avengers book, you read, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Was he under, in the uh, Under Siege story arc? Don't remember. Okay. Uh, did you ever see me in animation? Nope. Okay. Uh, what about you, Mr. Fixit? Um, I am somewhat familiar with him. I did read his crappy comics from the 80s, where I believe he or was. the 90s, the, the John Byrne series? Where he was a president of a corporation. Oracle, yeah. Oracle, yeah. Yeah. Big waste of time. I feel like I, see, I, feel like I read some of that. Cause I remember him in the, in the tuxes, right? Yeah. And the, the business suits, his hair all slicked back and the yeah. ponytail. Yeah, I feel like I read some of that, but I just. Nothing. Yeah, that taste you got in your mouth, that's pretty much what that's that was. What that was. Yes. That's sub- <laughs> name with Submariner, ladies and gentlemen. 
<laughs> fishy aftertaste. But was that the first thing you experienced him on? Um, no, I think I saw him on a Fantastic Four cartoon. Didn't he used to pop up in the mid nineties? You were reading no. well before that, though. Are you talking about? Oh, was he on the one from the seventies? Yeah, I believe he came out of one. Okay. Yeah. Plus, I mean, he was the only guy running around with wings on his ankles and green underwear. And you said you never saw the Marvel superheroes cartoon either, huh? Nope. If I remember correctly, I think it ran on the, a local UHF channel. It definitely ran on a local UHF channel. They would show this, and I want to say they showed it in the afternoon. This show and the Filmation DC, Aquaman had his own show, and it ran about a half hour. So when I would go to the pool, I would always try to turn myself into an amalgamation of Aquaman and the Submariner. I'd wrap a towel around my neck and turn it into a cape. And I had those guys in my mind, but the problem was is Aquaman could do some cool stuff. He could form those water balls and throw them at people, and he had the seahorse, and he had this whole universe about him. And when I'd see Submariner in the cartoons, it, he had the annoying song, his, his posturing – I respected him, but I didn't actually like him. I'm, I'm, it's weird to me that anybody would like him based on the cartoon. I remember when I read the Art Spiegelman Plastic Man book, and he talked about one of the things he liked about Plastic Man was that because he has the exposed legs and no boots, when Plastic Man in the 1940s, he was not a comedic character. He was a straight man. He was a, the superhero. And things around him, particularly his sidekick, uh, a Woozy Winks, that was the comic relief. So as the straight man superhero, but with these exposed legs, he was kind of sexualized. And Spiegelman spoke to that. And I look at Namor, I can see where girls might look at the hard body running around in little trunks and might be like, hey, he's pretty hot. And then the personality was totally kill it so it's like i don't see how he appeals to anybody really yeah i mean he's just not there's just never that depth with namor it seems like like you said you said he never changes he's always the same well that's kind of how it is like hey we got to bring in namor because we need we're going to do something in the ocean so let's call namor i mean you know what i mean he's just (laughs) he punches everything pretty much too yeah yeah and that's the extent of his powers is he gonna punch stuff and maybe fly around with wings on his ankles. It's just, uh, you know, it's a shame because he's been around for a long time and he's just never really been. I don't think he's ever going to be. He, he, you can just tell he doesn't have the potential of, a, of an Iron Man to go back to Iron Man, as we spoke to in the, the previous podcast, who seemed to always kind of be an underachieving character. Like You could see the potential you have with that universe around him, with the armors and the intelligence and the women and the money with with. With uh, Namor, it's just sort of Namor. Like, there's not. Well, he he did have one cool trick. He was always trying to bang Sue Storm. Right. And that, well, that, that, no, that's, that's good. That's kind of cool. I mean, that's cool. Ran for her husband. He's basically like, you know, I want to look at your winking eye. Right, but but like that. And what reminds me of that is the uh, man. We're gonna date this <laughs> podcast. Cheers, the guy who always trying to come in and steal Woody's girlfriend, the French guy. Holy shit! No, that's I do what, not remember that. But it was like that's the whole existence of the character. We just need somebody to come in and try and steal somebody's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But that's you're not. There's not going to be anything but he was more. A, but he was than it, trying to but, steal somebody's girlfriend. But that was kind of, I guess, an extra dimension to him, where like he he's so arrogant, he'll hit on her in front of the family, and it didn't bother him. The rest of the family were like, "Oh, that's just Namor. It's okay." After a while, you're just kind of like, "I don't know." That was how they reacted, dude. She would always tell him, "Oh, stop or behave." She kind of played it off, like she she well, liked where, the attention. Now, where are you getting that from, though? Is you talking about like the '90s books? Well, not like the Ultimate stuff. Okay, definitely yeah. the Ultimate stuff. Uh, there's a um, Namor in the Ultimate universe. I believe so. I had no idea. Yeah, the name. Like, I mean, you turn. It turns out Sue Storm's mom worked with Namor or something like that. I have to go back and reread it, but I believe that's part. I just finished reading the new FF stuff, and he did not appear in that. But I know he appeared in some of the older stuff. Okay. I remember reading some of the older stuff, and he would always kind of hint that, you know, she stole his heart and da-da-da. So You read 1, 2, 3, 4, too, didn't you? Yeah. They, they, that was a good, yeah, yeah that, that was another one where he was kind of like your winky eye or whispering eye. It always kind of struck me. That sounds <laughs> 
peculiar imagery. <laughs> well, especially with that eyebrow of his, you can see that kind of being pronounced. Mm-hmm. But um, it means vagina. <laughs> right, it means vagina. But okay. well, I'm just gonna say. What I'm saying is, even the although that was cool, him coming in and trying to. But they were trying to add layers to him. For, right, for but that's that. it. Like yeah. it didn't go any further. But you can't go now. Have him go be the guy who tries to steal other people's. Like you know I mean, there, it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, that was a cool. He's the guy that, kicking sand in your face. Well, Warlock, Adam Warlock. Before he was Adam Warlock, he was him, and that's basically what he did. Is he'd run up and he'd steal somebody's girlfriend. Like he stole Stiff, I think, for or at least one of Thor's girlfriends, and the girlfriend beat his ass. So I guess it's kind of a trope with Marvel. Huh. Hmm. The idea would be that Seb Mariner would cuckold Reed Richards. <laughs> but it, it kind of works the opposite direction. Seb Mariner goes from a guy who was a starring feature at one point in time in his history to a guy who shows up in Fantastic Four as a as a villain and sometimes supporting player who kind of plays around with his uh, well, wife a little bit. But she always goes back to Reed. But the so he's the one who kids up with the dick in his hand. I guess if you think about it, the one cool thing about him is he really has no allegiance to any side. He does That's go. True. He does go villainy. He does go here. Like really, he's, he's the guy you show up, and you're not sure what side of the fence he's playing on. So you kind of have to play play it safe with him. Like I think he's helping us, but he'll probably turn on us later because his royal highness. But no, I think actually that's a good point because you. I bet you could think back, and every single hero that he's fought, he's probably also had a team up with. Right, like mm-hmm. a, a, which I don't know any other character that's probably like that, where he is literally, in some cases, joined part of the team for a run of issues, and then literally a few couple of years later, be fighting them. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a, well, I mean, when when his seventies series ended, he didn't go to Fantastic Four. He didn't become somebody's backup strip. He teamed up with Doctor Doom for supervillain team up for a while. That's where he picked up from where the series left off. Hmm. So, so, so I mean, that, that's okay. I guess they they there's potential there, but no one has really like picked up the mantle. Well, I think recently, I, I, I like the fact he's part of the Illuminati, though I don't know how he fits into it. I haven't read enough of that, but I kind of think that's kind of neat. So let's find out the story of Submariner. Which would you like to know? Tell us the synopsis. What's okay. the basic story? Murder! Lots and lots of murder. Pretty much right off the bat, he's killing people left and right. Who? Submariner. Submariner. It's, you know, the artwork is... Well, give tell us the story. What is the actual okay. story? Two divers find a boat, go back to boat, submariner come out of boat, kill people, leave bodies there. Third third diver go into water, find submariner. Submariner killed a diver, more murder. Submariner take bodies to Queen, shows bodies to Queen. Queen so happy, dead humans. I think he presents them to a priest. The mother then goes on to talk about how the kingdom was bombed from the land lovers, I guess you would call them, and was wiping them out. She goes up to spy on them to use, and I kid you not, her womanly ways or wild womanly ways to get information from the humans. She ends up getting thunked and getting pregnant. They have the child, or she, she has her child. Mariner is then told that it's his job to basically get revenge for his people. And he goes on a warpath, goes up to the surface, finds a lighthouse, kills again. He's him and his cousin, I'm sorry, his female cousin, kills again, uh, attacks the military. And it's kind of strange because it doesn't really feel like it ever ends. It's just like kill, 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 get on a plane, escape, a little more killing, and then the story ends. That's a short synopsis. Like, so he gets away in the end? Mm-hmm. Or? Huh? After murdering, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say. Seven, eight people? Dope. So, yeah. He was on a rampage. The artwork is what you expect from comic at that time period, I guess. Uh, is it weird that I disagree? Really? I flipped through that before, and it looks – it just looks – it looks different from 
You know, the, the style is very basic. It seems like all the panels have this really, like, dark, moody... Oh, no, no, yes. At the like, beginning, washy yes. washy look to them. In the beginning, it does have that cool, moody, eerie comics horror feel to it. But then, for some reason, right when you get to the end, it kind of cleans up. It, it and it's standard. Like, not even like a fifth grader drew it. It's just real, real basic. And again, like I said, he gets on a plane, and that's it. He literally jumps off a plane, escapes in the water, and that's it. I thought there was more pages to it, and I started reading The Master Rider by accident because I thought that was part of it. I thought, I thought maybe they were going to send him to go get Mariner, the Submariner, and no, it didn't happen that way. So for what it was at that time period, I really didn't – I mean, you don't really see that, I would say, in a, a Marvel book now, or at least in the 90s, you wouldn't see Submariner pop up. And literally, they describe him crushing the, the diver's head, and then when he gets back, he, he refers them as robots to the queen, and he unscrews the lids, and they're like, oh, they're humans, and the queen's like – Oh, take these to the uh, throne room and have all the subjects see our our conquer our victory. It's pretty dark. And so, so I, I guess I guess all that uh, that hazy look because I've, I've seen the first several pages of this a million times. I guess that's just when he's underwater that it's all hazy and that's just what their effective. But that, that what their effect of action taking place underwater looks like, right? That has a nice look to it. Yeah, it does. But but the reason the rest of it isn't like that is because it's above ground, yeah. right? Earth above but, sea. But you above, lose. Out, I guess you would say that effect. What is going on with these people's eyes? Yeah, all the uh, Atlanteans have these gigantic anime eyes, but because they're American, they're all creepy and weird. Reminding me of the um, Black Hole Sun video. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I I bet if we talked to Chris Cornell, he would be like, "Yeah, no, that's it." <laughs> 1939. That was when this was 1939, right? Yeah, 39. So who who did this book? Bill Everett. Bill Everett. That's right. Okay. okay. He came from an affluent family, but he as as youth he repeatedly contracted tuberculosis. So he was off in uh, I think Arizona for a lot of his mm-hmm. youth, and he was kind of troubled. He was an alcoholic. He was rebellious. He was unfocused. He was a high school dropout. His parents sent him to art school, thinking that might help him to find a, a direction. Plus, his father died when he was young, you know, in his teens or so, and his father had wanted to become a cartoonist, so he tried to pursue that. But he wasn't interested in doing comic books at all. What happened is he was basically a starving artist. It's the depression after all. Couldn't get. Work. So somebody told him, hey, you work in comics. So that's why he ended up getting to work in, in the studios. Uh, he also co-created Amazing Man, who was a very influential early superheroic type character that Centaur published. The name of the character Submariner, it came from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And it turned out that Everett is actually a descendant of that poet, William Blake. Hmm. And the name Namor is a reverse of Roman. And actually, uh, wow. Rob, <laughs> Rob Liefeld created a fake Namor for his Extreme Comics line, mm-hmm. and he called that guy Roman, I guess, because he used the story of Namor. And Namor was the first ever flying superhero in comics. Hmm. Yeah, he was the first flying superhero. Even before the Human Torch? Even before the Human Torch. Well, he predated the Human Torch because his story was published before Marvel oh, Comics number right, one. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And then Superman was only leaping, and in fact, in the first Human Torch story, he only leaps. So Mariner was the first one to literally the, just fly. The fly, yeah, because the little wings on his feet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Holy cow. Let me give you a little bit of a background on how Marvel came into being. He had this fellow. Lloyd Jacquet, I assume that's French. He was the art director for Centaur Publications. The Centaur Publications, they employed the Terry A. Chesler Studio. These were guys who would basically produce the comics, and then the publisher would publish those comic books. Three guys worked at Terry A. Chesler Studio. That was Carl Burgos, Bill Everett, and Paul Gustafson. Now, what happened is Jacquet said, well, hey, why don't we form our own packaging company? And they did. It was uh, Funnies Incorporated. So all 
those guys that used to work for Harry A. Chesler and Jacket were doing that. And they were uh, this rare clearinghouse where all the creators kind of worked from home. They did it however they wanted to do it. Just turn it over to the publisher and they would get their full credit. That's why Bill Everett got his great big named credit in this particular strip where it was almost verboten in comic strips to list the creators back in that time period. So anyway, so these guys decided to put out their own comic book. It was called Motion Picture Funnies Weekly. It had one issue released in April of 1939. And the intention was they were going to give them away, have a giveaway at movie theaters. They printed up a number of copies. They tried to get movie theater owners into it. They weren't interested. It was basically a glorified ash can. Pretty much it seemed like nobody knew this book even existed until they found these ash can copies in the estate of Jaquette back in 1974. Submariner, the first eight pages of the Submariner story were in motion picture funnies. And that's why the style changes from those first eight pages into the latter pages because those pages were added to the original story at a later date. So what happened is when that failed, the former Centaur sales director, Frank Topi, talked a fellow named Martin Goodwin and Goodman into publishing comics. Now, are you all familiar with Martin Goodman at all? That name sounds familiar. But. Okay. He's the guy who set up Timely, and Timely were the publishers of Marvel Comics, which soon became Marvel Mystery Comics. And then he was the publisher of all the other Marvel uh, series up through the 60s. So he was Stanley's boss and the owner of all the different companies that were Marvel before Marvel came into existence and for a long time of, as Marvel. So he was talking to becoming a comic book publisher by the guys from Funnies Incorporated, in part so they could move the material that they produced for motion picture Funnies and couldn't do anything with. Funnies Inc. still owned the characters they created for Timely until 1940. What happened is Joe Simon uh, was the editor at Marvel and they basically annoyed the guys at Funnies Incorporated until it was too much of a hassle to deal with Timely. So they talked him into selling the characters to Timely by harassing them essentially until they gave up and signed over the characters. After the Timely books were cancelled back in the 1940s, they continued to produce horror titles and then later on they changed their name to Atlas. And during the Atlas period, right around the time where them was on his crusades they tried to bring back the superheroes around 1954. The first issue of Submariner in this period was number 33, where he's choking out a communist. He's got a big old hammer and sickle on his helmet. And you flip through and you find out it's the same artist, but he's telling a more straightforward Ooh, origin nice of Submariner. Like same artist. It's really? Bill Everett, yeah. You know, too, that he's got a blue trunks, and I don't know if it was an effect of the Wortham Crusade or not, but they toned down the violence. This looks really good. Yeah, that <laughs> looks really good. <laughs> Bill Everett. It only lasted less, like, maybe a year. We all know that Marvel, during their bankruptcy, FC, well, they were always kind of bad about spreading their concepts all over the place and selling out to everybody. My understanding is, like the cartoon, I don't think Marvel made any money off that. I think that they gave that to the, the film studio to create, essentially, for promotional purposes to get it out the there. Brand. Now, when Marvel was going through the bankruptcy back in the 90s, they were making some kind of money, but they were they were sitting out their, their options to, to everybody you know who was interested, and some studios essentially got to buy characters. Like, the, I think Fox owns the X-Men movie rights in perpetuity. You know, Disney's going to have to pay them buku bucks if they ever want get the X-Men back or Fox has to just completely run into ground and then maybe it'll be one of these things where the superheroes finally become passe they can get that stuff back well Namor was one of the only ones that was in an, in an unusual place he was at Universal and he was there for a number of years and if you may remember that Bill Gemus and Sal Polaroca in the 2000s tried to launch a Namor series to help build up interest with the expectation that they were going to do a movie I think in fact The Rock was attached to it for a long period of time there oh that does sound familiar well they recently asked Kevin Feige and I mean like within the last few days is Namor still at Universal 
can Universal Legendary make a Submariner movie? And he just said, nope. And then they ask, okay, well, so could Marvel do a Submariner movie? It's like, here's the thing. We have the rights, but there's issues with it, and we have to get all kinds of permissions to put Namor in one of our movies, where with Iron Man, we just stick him in a movie. So Namor can actually come back in a movie someday at Marvel. Do you think that they know what to do with that character if they did bring him back? Do you no, think he would just no. be a villainous character? It's a shame, because let's, let's face it, he needs to be in Fantastic Four movies. Right. And well, because he's been so associated with Fantastic Four in the Marvel age. Yeah, I mean, it, it would just be so weird to try and plug him. I mean, I, I guess they could, but it would just be so weird to plug him into an Avengers movie. It's something not right. I don't jive. I don't jive. So it, it's just a shame, because he should be but with you're okay with Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, though. And they got their started in the X-Men. They were, they were very specifically mutants, and it was kind of a, an integration episode where these guys were but, allowed into the Avengers. I mean, they were, you know, West Coast Avengers. I mean, they, she's got a long history with the Avengers, at least. Whereas Namor is just... He's, he's fantastic. Did he just come in in the 80s? Was he around before that? Or, was he, or he was a defender, really, right? Yeah, he was a yeah he was a defender, which, mm-hmm. who cares? Well, I like the defenders, but they, well, apparently Marvel doesn't care because they've given that name over to Netflix to make your street-level team. So. But it's not like anybody's been able to make the defenders work since they first flamed out in the early 80s. So what about you? Do you have any ideas of how Marvel could make Submariner work? In their Marvel Cinematic Universe, or even in the main Marvel Universe, you said you like maybe, the Illuminati, but maybe if they put him into like a Netflix show, uh, a miniseries, he's not—he can't carry a movie. He would be kind of expensive to do a water show, though, don't you think? No, not really, because he's going to do most of his fighting on the outside. I mean, you're going to see him jump in the water every once in a while, or take a shower to recharge, but. Oh, Man. they could do some sort of off vampire kind of deal where he goes into some weird water sarcophagus at night. Cut all this, because that's a good idea. <laughs> Cut all that out. <laughs> million dollar idea. You're going to own that so up. So he has to sleep in his sarcophagus of water at night. Ooh. And of course, he's, he's so, in a black outfit so, with a vampire color. Of course, he's in a black outfit with his black pointy uh, so, Dracula hair that so he's got you, all the time. So you just described the literally Daredevil, where Daredevil sleeps in a... Oh, you're talking about the Mark Stephen Johnson yeah. movie Daredevil? Oh, Daredevil's whole life is like that because he's blind. But he sleeps in a tank of water every night because it's so it, it, it's a it's a deprivation tank, a sensory oh, right. deprivation yeah. tank, tank, so that he can he doesn't ah uh, so yeah. he's not sensing everything. Yeah, yeah so he's Where sleeping in the from? water. That the the Daryl movie, movie. Daryl really? Ben Affleck. Yeah. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Did that? If you watch the uncut one, it's actually kind of cool because he's asleep in it, and he as soon as he wakes up, that's when all the noise hits him, and he's slowly like tuning it out because he can't deal with it. It's weird, but that's kind of cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of interesting I never saw stuff. that movie and never. I, I yeah. enjoyed it. I, I liked it. It's, it wasn't it's a great. good movie. It's not it, great, but it's good. It was a bad movie mostly because they had too many ideas that they were trying to push into that movie all yeah. at once. Too many story arcs were trying to get into there. Um, but they had some good ideas, bad casting choices. But so there were some good ideas. I liked the idea of Daredevil being a guy who woke up and he was in pain. He had to actually take painkillers to get through his day because when he's out there every night fighting, he needs something to take that edge off. He's not superhuman in any way. But there was a bunch of other stuff like martial arts combat uh, wooing on a teeter totter. That's not. Yeah, a good oh, idea. Well, that was a love interest thing. That was him and Electra fighting on a playground. And it's a way of like getting their woo on. They're trying to romance mm-hmm. each other by fighting each other on a playground. Were there even kids around, or is it night or something? Right? No, yeah, I think it's at night. That was bad. No, yeah. see, that's that's where that's see movies like that. You don't need a female love interest. That's I think that's the problem with some of these movies. that are like, well, we need to put a love interest. Blade had none. Blade was a fantastic movie because we're just killing things. Works for me. Yeah, it's Let's keep it simple. It's same thing with the Avengers. There was no love story in there, except for maybe uh, Black, Black Widow and Hawkeye. Not really. But it was so minute 
it, it didn't dominate the movie. It wasn't a big part of the movie. It was just kind of like, oh, they kind of have feelings for each other. When you were listening to the one episode, you were talking about how you like the, the uh, rapport. Yep. Uh, because of the editing and because we're getting through so much material so quickly, you get that camaraderie through there. It's just you're having to get that camaraderie through heavy fat boy breathing and massive shifts in sound quality and, and background noise. Because, like, when I pump up the volume, I'm also having to pump up the hiss that seems to prevail no matter what we record on. There's always that slight hiss in the background. And so whenever I try to pump that up, all of a sudden you've got that extra hiss as well. It fucking sucks. I'm going to have to find some way of making the audio quality better. I don't know if it's the mics, the programs. Probably it's the cheap-ass mics we're using. I don't know. But we're not in a place yet where we can go out and buy a bunch of shit. So for now, we're just going to work off cheap-ass audio. Yeah. The breathing really was only picked up by the box recorder. I don't think the audacity has that problem. Really? Okay. So that's one of the reasons why I haven't been. If, if I were hearing heavy pervert breathing on every episode, we would definitely be doing something right now. Right now, I'm just talking into the external mic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we'll see how this turns out. This could end up being crap, too, so. We got the gimp. The Master Raider debuted in November 1939's Marvel Comics No. 1. He was created by the strip's writer-artist Al Anders, who didn't do a heck of a lot else. The origin story takes place in Cactusville, in which Jim Hardley uh, refuses to give up his ranch to land baron Cal Brunder. So Brunder gets him on a trumped-up cattle rustling charge, and he's locked away in jail by Sheriff Steve. In his cell, Gardley realizes that he's young and strong, and if anybody was going to do something about guys like Cal Brunder, it ought to be him. So he pretends like he's dying, lures Sheriff Steve into the cell, pops him one in the mouth, and then runs off. Gardley steals a horse, runs off to camp out in the hills, and then sends the horse back because he's no rustler. Shortly after that, he raids his own ranch for supplies, and he hides out in the hills for weeks, training as a quick draw. The Masquerader is still missing one vital component of a Lone Ranger ripoff, which is his own trick horse. He finds a wild horse horse out on the range over the course of, a, of a, an indeterminate amount of time manages to finally wrangle and break that horse who he names lightning and would continue with, to have adventures with him throughout the series once he feels he's suitably proficient as a gunslinger and while wearing the same clothes he'd been arrested in the mask raider is born by donning a solid black mask that looks like something from a creepy bondage video and he swears i jim gardley hereby make a solemn vow to forever fight the lawless bring justice to the oppressed and help the poor. To this end, I, the Masked Raider, dedicate my life to this oath. In Gardley's absence, the reign of terror of Cal Brunder continued. He's murdering people, continuing to frame people, and finally the townsfolk essentially give up and decide they'd rather sell out than be burned out. Sheriff Steve does protest, but he doesn't have any actual spine. The Mask Raider shoots one of Cal Brunder's evil hands and leaves his still-living but pretty badly shot-up body lying in town with a note pinned to it. It read, Brunder... You and your gang must pay for all your crimes. I'm starting to collect. Signed, in cursive, the masked raider. The raider then secretly enlists the aid of the clueless sheriff. However, he's spotted by one of the evil ranch hands and then another one of the evil ranch hands. So while they're arguing about who's going to plug the sheriff and the masked raider, the raider comes around and bonks their heads together like a Three Stooges comedy. Soon after, the masked raider confronts the main evil ranch hand, Slick. It's worth noting, too, that you've heard those rules about the, the lettering that was put down in the Golden Age because the lettering was so bad and the printing was so bad that words would tend to merge together. And you can see the insight in that because Slick, when you're reading the story, he seems to be called Suck. You have to stop and remind yourself, no, he's meant to be sick, Slick, not Suck. But anyway, Slick, 
sees the masked raider, he's like, you, you, you're masked. And that seems to be the reaction of most people in the origin story. I think it has to do with the mask, since it's solid black with just sort of like white eye indications and a, and a smiling white mouth indication, which seems to just be a trick of the light that is advantageous for the comic strip. I don't know why they're so freaked out by Mask Man, but then again, you see this guy and you think he's going to do things to you. Instead, on this instance, Mask Raider just beats the heck out of Slick, and that brings in the other evil hands coming after the Mask Raider, but at the same time, the ruckus also drew the attention of the townspeople who fell upon the ranch hands, beat them all up, and retook their town. Bruni hears about this and tries to escape, but the Mask Raider lassoes him and turns him over to the law. Rather Rather than just return to his own life, the masked raider you know, rides off into the distance, and the sheriff asks himself, Bruner's finished, but will the masked man tackle the bigger game? And in fact, he did. Since this is our introduction, and this is our, you know, since we've talked about the comics in general, this is the section where we're going to be talking about our character, and why we like our character, and what makes our character cool to us. So that's what I'm looking for from you tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, you know what I need from you. So I'm going to just start talking about Iron Man? Do you remember your first exposure to Iron Man? Nope. I just, I, I don't know, maybe I just got introduced to him at the right time. You remember about how old you were? This was probably 1991? Mm-hmm. 1992? With anybody who discovers their favorite character, they just happen to get the right back issue at the right time. Didn't see bad stuff. You eventually started collecting Iron Man? Yeah. Do you recall roughly when you started collecting the book on a regular basis? I mean, it would have been whatever was coming out in 91, 92. That was before Lee Kaminsky, right? Was, not was not the, too far before then, though. But this was after Michelini and Layton, right? Yeah. Kaminsky, to a large degree, though, was kind of your gateway guy. Since yeah. he's like one of the first guys you can actually remember the run. Well, that would have been the first like concurrent stuff, like where I'm actually collecting it as it was coming out. But before that stuff came out, I'd already gone back and scooped up Michelin and uh, Layton stuff and got into that. About how many years would you say you collected actively? Because you started to get around 91. You probably ended around the time I closed the oh. shop in 02. Roughly, yeah. Then really haven't had any contact with comics since then. No. At one point in time, you were a fan of Magnum PI. I could kind of see some parallels between Magnum PI and Tony Stark. Yeah, for sure. See that as well. Oh yeah, for sure, definitely. Do you think that you're because Magnum PI? I think you were into before Tony too. Do you think one fed into the other? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. I think the kind of cockiness, the cool cockiness, is is was is definitely something they have in common. I don't know. I mean, other than they're both mustachioed. I'm not sure how much further the similarities go beyond there. I mean, both, well, they're both playboys, I guess, right? They both have black buddies that are always helping them out of the jams they're getting into. They both live an extravagant lifestyle filled with beautiful women. But in the case of Tony Stark, he earned it where Magnum just sort of got to borrow it. And like you said, the, the swagger, the looks, the attitude. It's nice to see a hero who enjoys what they're doing. Right. I'd say that probably the thing that appealed to me more than Iron Man itself was Tony Stark. I thought Tony Stark was a real... He was just different. You know, you had you had Peter Parker, who was the wussy nerd, and you have Bruce Wayne, who was super rich, but he was all... He was mentally scarred and all messed up, whereas Tony Stark was... He acted more the way you would think somebody who was a multimillionaire should act. Like, so he had fun with his money, he had big houses, he had big cars... He was always dating the hottest women. He was super arrogant. He had Rhodes, who was his buddy, who was black, who, who was that's also different from a lot of other comic books. Well, that and while I'm a Cap guy, I've never liked the Falcon. He always just felt like the PC insertion into the series. Where Rhodey, and this has definitely been carried over into the movies, Rhodey feels like a vital part. Right. More right. so than, like, I don't know how much of the 1960s stuff you went back and read, but I guess that you had the happy pepper dynamic back then, but all the stuff that I've read that you've loaned to me and all the stuff I've been exposed to, it's Rhodey. Rhodey's the guy that hangs out with Tony Stark, and these other people are just sort of in, more in the background. 
Yeah, and, and Rhodey was his muscle. He was his partner. They were friends. So he, he really relied on Rhodey. Rhodey was a, was a straight-up friend in the book. I haven't read tons of Batman, but I would think that a lot of times Robin didn't feel like Batman's friend. They're just weird. It's, Those like, characters have a very uncomfortable relationship right. because you would think that Award and the mentor, you would have a more parental relationship. But they're kind of siblings, and then there's these weird jealousies and these protective things that go on. Yeah. Just a, a jacked up codependency between these people that are both emotionally scarred, but Batman more so than any of his wards. Tony and Rhodes work together as two adults that have interests and desires beyond this singular notion that someone like Batman and Robin would have. And even his female relationships were more realistic, I think, in a lot of ways that, you know, you had the whole Pepper happy thing and you had the Tony Pepper thing and then you, his relationships with Black Widow and Bethany Cabe and Madame Mask, you had that kind of romantic side to it, brainy villains like uh, Justin Hammer, you had the, the, the Russian side to it with Titanium Man and Crimson Dynamo. You had the awesome Obadiah Stane story arc. He wasn't perfect. He had his his alcoholism that was always there. Just all those things. I just thought he was always there, or just there since like the Bronze Age. I mean, was he drinking like that back in the '60s, or was that more in the '80s? You know, I can't honestly. I I can't tell the truth that I remember exactly when it started. Your relationship with Tony means that you started with the alcoholism, right. so you're familiar with that issue with him throughout your fandom. Right. So, I mean, going back, because obviously I would have been going backwards in time, so still a lot of the things you know from the character at the time you're reading will exist, even though you're reading backwards before it happened. It still stays with you as a character trait. Well, it's like me. When I was introduced to Captain America, he only had a few adventures with Bucky, and then Bucky was gone, and I'm not used to Bucky being around. It disturbs me to see how much Bucky is around nowadays, because that's not the Captain America I grew right. up on. I grew exactly. up with him hanging out with a whole bunch of other people, and this guy was supposed to be dead. His whole thing was he was a dead guy that Cap warned, and now all of a sudden he's all over the place. Right, exactly. So then, uh, on the other hand, you also had the business side of it. That was a whole other layer of Tony Stark's being that could be threatened was the business side. And, and his relationships with S.H.I.E.L.D., there was references to the Danger Room and X-Men being built by Stark technology. You know, so he had all these little fingers everywhere in the Marvel Universe. And it just sucked. See, I, he, I didn't realize, because I know Stark technology is all over the movies. I didn't realize how embedded it was in the Marvel Universe as well. I knew about S.H.I.E.L.D., and I knew every now and again there'd be some bit of tech that would show up in a book that I was reading, but I didn't. I wasn't aware that he was that prolific within the Marvel Universe. Yeah, and I want to say it was real early that they discussed Stark technology being used in the Danger Room. Like, that wasn't something that was added later on. I think, I want to say that was really early. I'll have to double-check and back that up, to back that up. I gotta tell you, I like that a lot better than it being sentient Shi'ar technology that breaks away eventually and becomes a character unto itself. Good uh, lord. They did I, that in the comics. I, I didn't know if you knew about that. Uh, it sounds familiar. I, I just thought all the diff- those different layers of the character, it just sucked because a lot of the time when I was a fan of him, he wasn't being utilized right. You know, it, it's just a shame. So that's why, and I know you feel the same with Cap, and I feel the same with Cap too. For for actually all the Avengers, that it freaks me out when I have little Iron Men coming to my door for Halloween, and I have more Iron Men coming to my door than I have Spider Men or Superman or Batman. You know what I mean? Well, it's weird because me and Mister Fixit grew up reading X Men, and when we started reading, they were still somewhat the underdogs. They were the the alternative to the the more iconic Marvel heroes, and obviously that paradigm shifted in the '80s to the point where the X-Men were the end-all, be-all for a lot of people in comics. They, a lot of people who came into comics came in specifically for X-Men and only later branched out with like 
stuff like Dark Knight Returns and such. So the X-Men became the idealized heroes, and the iconic Marvel heroes became the underdogs, and now it's flipped again, and it's so, kind of disorienting, because you're, you're not expecting to see your guys get represented. You expect them to be the guys who maybe in continuity matter, but to the greater world are these old-school things that nobody cares about anymore, but now everybody cares about them. Right, exactly. And so, especially for someone like me, who's been, I've, I've been away for so long, that when, when I left Iron Man, he was no more popular than he was when I started reading Iron Man. If, it, you know, if anything, he was even less popular when I left. So to, to just see the explosion since the movies came out, it's... And I've been away long enough that I can sit back and watch the movies and not be mad about, you know, oh, you know, that, well, they should have stuck to this. This isn't like the books. I don't get bothered about stuff like that. Well, I mean, a good example is Sam Rockwell as Justin Hammer. Oh, I love yeah. that performance, but I know that is in no way the character from the comics. Exactly. Or Whiplash. Stuff like... Whiplash is a throwaway villain... There could have been so many other villains they could have used. The Mandarin being, well, spoilers, not the Mandarin. Stuff like that would have really bothered me. And now I just be able to kind of sit back and enjoy the movies and, and hopefully enjoy what other people are enjoying. Did Except, you ever get around to watching that uh, Marvel one-shot that followed Iron Man 3? No, I haven't. followed Mandarin into prison? No, I haven't. You, you really got to find that and give it a watch. It's, it's outstanding. It's one of the best ones they've done. And for you being an Iron Man fan, I think it'll help your enjoyment of... It won't fix Iron Man 3's problems for you, but it'll give you a little something to you know, perk you up the next time you think about the Mandarin. Which, while we're talking, we should establish, I really enjoyed Iron Man 2. I really did not care for Iron Man 3, which is the opposite of uh, public opinion, so... Yeah, well, I mean, I, I got ripped see. off too because if you came in in the early '90s and you're becoming an Iron Man fan, both from the series as it's currently running and going back and picking up the back issues, you weren't very deep into, you know, following this book on a regular basis before you got hit with the Crossing, before you know, Heroes uh, Reborn. You didn't get to appreciate your guy for nearly as long as most people get to in their golden age because he was getting trashed almost as soon as you were coming into the book. Oh, yeah, and, and, and what was it? Uh, Infinity Christ? Infinity Crusade? He turned out to be the big, the doppelganger that was working for... Or was it the Magus that was in that one? It might have been the Magus. I can't what keep those series straight anymore. It must have been, I think it was the Magus because the, it was a Crusader War where they had the... the du- I can't remember, for God's sake. Those things just ran into one another. Yeah, but I, I just remember how... I mean, I didn't even read the whole series. I just remember when they when they revealed Iron Man was the one that had been abducted, or he was the doppel the original doppelganger. You know, you probably cut all this out because uh, I'm not remembering enough of these details. But it, it just showed the disrespect to me for the character because Wolverine would never be the one that was. You know, Wolverine has to be the hero, whereas they felt that Iron Man was the one that they could take the pass on and uh, and uh, have be the turncoat essentially. But. Anyway. Iron Man is born. Mr. Fixit, we spent the origin episode talking about how Mac got interested in Iron Man. Where were you first exposed to the character? The movies. Absolutely the movies. You read the comics. Ah, dude. Mac, what Mac would read, maybe I read some of his stuff. I did not buy Iron Man comics. You read, like, Civil War and stuff before the movies ever came out. Yeah, but, dude, that wasn't an Iron Man exclusive story. That was Iron Man in the universe. I'm talking about, like, just straight Iron Man story. I remember trying to borrow that uh, everyone kept telling me to read Armor Wars or something. And so I remember trying to read that because I've never really read anything about his world. Anything that I've read about Iron Man, he was always in the Marvel Universe or within a team base, but it was never been just about him. So when I read this first issue, it was kind of interesting because I really didn't know that much about him. 
time except for the movies. Oh no, I take that back. I did read the one episode uh, issue where that character blows his brains out. That is the only comic of Iron Man I've ever written. That was the first one. I believe you actually gave it to me at your shop. You I want to say that's my first one though. I'll tell you my story. Jimco was the only department store I can think of that ever had a spinner rack, and it seemed like every single time I went to Jimco, they had at least one issue of Iron Man, and it was always one of the Denny O'Neill Luke McDonald issues. And in particular, I remember the cover where Iron Man's in an alley, uh, and and all across the wall is this graffiti that reads, "By tomorrow morning, Tony Stark will be sober or dead." And that really impressed me. I thought that was whoa, this is high stakes here. And I, I would flip through those issues when I'd see them on the Jimco rack. It just seemed too sophisticated for me. Just got to be honest, I just was too young, and I would look at it and it's like, wow, this looks kind of interesting. I'm not going to buy this because I don't think I'm going to get it and put it right back on the on the rack. There might have been some other factor, but that's the only thing I could think of. Is I just maybe I couldn't feel comfortable buying it. But every time I would see it, like in the three pack, the one I always saw in the three pack was uh, one of the characters. I think it was Tony Stark in the classic armor fighting Jim Rhodes in the red and gold armor. Is that? Am I thinking about that the right cover? I think it's a black background. Uh, you may have that backwards in the Denny O'Neill stuff. Rhodey was never in the silver armor. So I would always see those covers in the three packs and I'd see the issues at the Jimco and I just never made the plunge and I think also it might just be because I'm a Luddite I just I don't gravitate toward characters that are big, big into technology and I think that might have been part of it I just like he was a guy who put on a suit of armor and I just couldn't get into it that Denny O'Neill stuff, it's heralded. I mean, it's, but it's, it's a pretty dark shit. Like, they go, that particular issue, I believe that's one where he delivers the homeless woman who he's befriended's baby in the alleyway in a winter storm. Spoiler, I want to read that. I'll be honest with you, of all the Iron Man comics in existence, the ones that I'm most interested in reading are those O'Neill uh, McDonald issues. Yeah, it's, and you know what, McDonald is kind of like the forgotten artist in the uh, Iron Man lore, but I always like this stuff. It's not Bob Layton, but it's good. Look, McDonald never a break when it came to runs because he's the guy who followed didn't he follow Layton on Iron Man he may have bookend yeah because I think they came back afterwards and then he had to follow Chuck Patton on Justice League he had to follow Jim Starlin on Dreadstar basically the only thing he ever got first round on was Suicide Squad so everybody's like ooh Luke McDonald he's not the guy I really want on the book he never caught a freaking break it seemed like but that looked like really good stuff it looked very dramatic very intense yeah the problem is that I think uh, I don't know how long that was the Obadiah Stain storyline that ended in issue 200 I don't know how long it lasted, but I'm pretty sure that is a really long story arc. There are other stories. It took so long that that would end up just kind of being backup pages in another story. Like, they started running stories concurrently because it was taking so long to develop the overall story. So I think to actually trace the full thing from start to finish, a fairly decent you know, run of issues. It's, it's not a 10-issue miniseries. Like, it, it's a pretty large chunk. Did you become a fan from the movies? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Robert Downey Jr., in my eyes, created Tony Stark. I, like I said, I've never read any comic, and I still haven't really sat down and read an Iron Man comic. I'm assuming that's pretty close to what he's like in the books. Am I right, Machine? Um, I, I think I think it's pretty close. They, they, I think, well, I mean, they take all the best parts of Tony Stark and they put him in the movie. So I, I think if you went back and you read several stretches, you wouldn't be like, who's this guy? He's not Robert Downey Jr. I, I think that there are lots of parallels between the two characters. There, there have been some stretches where he doesn't act like that. Uh, well, would I, you recommend, like, the Armored Wars or anything like that? Yeah, man, the Armored Wars is, is cool stuff. I, again, it's, it's very techie. I mean, obviously, the whole basis of it is everybody's stealing his technology and him coming and to take it back 
So he's kind of got this vendetta from all these people who have knocked off his stuff. Not necessarily knocked it off. I mean, like, stolen. That's sort of the whole thing. Yeah. Discovered that a lot of the stuff that's out there is his. So he goes on the offensive. So instead of letting all the villains come to him, he starts going after them and taking it to them to get his stuff back. It's good stuff, man. It's it's fun stuff. I'll, I'll recommend some stuff for you later. Cool. One, uh, when you mentioned Armor Wars 2, uh, you know, there are certain characters where I didn't follow them, but they would have those house ads that were so striking that it made you want to at least give them a try. With, like, Hawkman, he had the Shadow War of Hawkman and there was this great ad where he's got a Cestus glove on and there's just these shadowy images with eyes peering out over him and it's like wow I want to read that book Armor Wars definitely piqued my interest in checking out Iron Man I love that line about it's time for the Avenger to start avenging or something like that Yeah, and that they definitely despite my uh, aversion to Iron Man that made me want to at least check that story arc out yeah, and it, I don't think it's terribly long either so that that's a good and, and that's, that's collected in trades so it, it's a nice run but like I said the Denny O'Neill stuff is so I think it's so long it's kind of tough to recommend that because i'm making you commit to like years worth of comics well i don't want to associate it with something negative but it, it strikes me that around those same years the flash went through the trial of the flash which ran for something like two years straight nobody thought that that story could carry that i've never heard anybody say that denny o'neill didn't carry iron man over that time period but it's just an extraordinary investment you have to make into reading that much material if you're talking about a couple or three years worth of story art that's a lot to get involved into I hope I'm speaking correctly, but I, I, at least always to me, because that was the stuff I got into. You know, I was always the Bob Layton guy after giving Luke McDonald some props. But this stuff, it's not as flashy as the Layton stuff. And not to mention the fact that he's going through some nasty time. So that uh, exponentially compounds how dirty the artwork is. I came to read Iron Man and I'm seeing homeless people drawn by not as clean artists as Bob Layton. Hopefully I'm not remembering it, you know, the length of that run incorrectly. But I want to say he did Iron Man four years. And I think that was basically the whole span was the four years was him telling that story. It almost sounds like you're explaining the theory of relativity to where if you're watching a guy who's supposed to be flashy and cool, be drunk and homeless and grim and gritty where he's not supposed to be, it just feels like it was longer than it was. Uh, well, I mean, if it was actually four years, it's a pretty damn long story arc. True. We'll get into some of that stuff later on. Right now, what we're going to look at is the very first Iron Man story ever. Pretty damn cool cover. I think it's awesome. I, li I like it when covers tell a story unto themselves. I dig how you've got basically three panels of Iron Man coming together and then boom, you've got the iconic image of the original gray bulky armor iron man he lives he walks he conquers yeah i think it's i, I love this color it's class and I, I think it's is that a kirby did kirby do the cover i think kirby did it yeah i don't know though that cross hatching maybe it actually is a heck or maybe kirby laid it out and then heck finished it off yeah i may look that up while we talk okay what do you think about it mr fix it i'm looking at it right now it's a great cover before when i was looking at it i looked at all the other covers that had come out during that series and no i mean they did some solid work i could see why there was such an appeal for the character right off the bat and this great you know armored character coming at you you can definitely tell they're, tell they're giving it the hard sell too because it's not just like a nice cover image this one they're telling you who or what is the newest most breathtaking most sensational superhero of all iron man and then they're mentioning too from the talented bullpen where the fantastic four spider-man thor and your other favorite superheroes were born so they're working hard to associate you with this wave of superhero books that were successful for them they want you to know this isn't a horror story this is the new superhero that you've got to check out I can confirm cover artist Jack Kirby, according to Marvel Comics. Okay, so looking at the splash page, Iron Man is born. That's another iconic image. I seem to recall, I, I wish I could remember who first pointed it out to me. There's kind of a vaginal thing going on here. It's Iron Man is born, and he's like coming out of this V-shaped, craggy opening. Then he's vibrating, and he looks like a toy. So what's going on there, Mac? Hey, um, okay, so I just quit this podcast forever. <laughs> You just ruined an iconic page of my childhood. <laughs> I, I can never, I can't, I can't get back. 
this can't come back now. So that's, so that's uh, this is a really a weird spot for me to be in. I hate to. Can we turn to, can we turn to page two? Uh, you got any thoughts on that one, Mister Fixit? It does look like vagina. Yes, it does. All right, and okay, and. We're- and he seems to be trembling on his way in or out. Yeah, he's vibrating all right. He's got that little probe thing coming out of his shoulder. No, don't talk about the probe. <laughs> hey, hey, page two, though. Wow, look at that. <laughs> lots, of, lots of words on page two. Guys, go ch- hey, go check those out. <laughs> wow, that's uh, Frank, that was really uh, a good catch on that one. <laughs> No, I, I I didn't come to that on my own. Somebody has mentioned that in the past. I wish I could remember so I could give them the credit for it. I will uh, say, though, and, and you made the knock already, but Don Heck is sort of a weird spot. I like Don Heck. I got to say, flipping, since I'm looking at it in the uh, the essential Iron Man, so I'm able to kind of flip through a lot of these Tales of Suspense issues in succession. Don Heck knocked it out of the ballpark in this Tales of Suspense 39. They must have, like you said, they must have really said, Don, we gotta, we're going to hype this one up. We're getting Jack to do the cover. We're flashing our Fantastic Four card on the cover. So you got to bring it. Because I think the interiors on this are really good. Oh, no, they are. Um, I'm looking at it on my tablet, and, I mean, the detail is just, when you look at, like you said, the second page, top right corner, and, I mean, there's so much detail on just the computers in the background. It, it really, I, and I came to the same conclusion. I, I've i seen Don Heck plenty in the past. He's one of those guys who you hated to f- do a fill-in issue in the 80s. But here, his line is so crisp, so lean, and and. and Packing the detail. What I love too is like Tony's face. Even in panels where he's really small relative to everything else in the panel, you always have this very distinctive face. He doesn't look like anybody else. Yeah, they, they do a really good job of making you understand who you're not going to. He's not just another faceless guy putting on, you know, scientist, right? Like they set him up as, hey, Tony Stark's going to be as integral to this character as Iron Man is. Um, I think he has I'm sorry. He has that whole Steve Jobs sweater thing going. I like that. Well, I was going to say Howard Hughes, but uh, yeah, he definitely looks like an iconic figure in the the science world. Well, I'm just saying he had the turtleneck. It looks like a turtleneck. Yeah, no, he's got a turtleneck under that that, uh, lab coat. Yeah, but that's a suave looking sucker. Yeah. One of the first things I noticed is I think in the very first word balloon, the guy says, boy, that guy Stark must really rate and rate is bolded. Um, you get a 24 hour guard, which I think is hilarious. That the word, I mean, that's just some of your 1960s lingo that kind of milks in. That's why I kind of like I love reading these old comics whenever you can really pick up on the, uh, the period centric stuff. You know, everybody kind of knows Iron Man's origin, but it's been updated so many times. It was kind of interesting to me rereading Tales of Suspense 39 after being so long at how much better this original origin is than all of the others. I, I'll say the movie is a close second. You'll notice it, it's because the movie really stuck close to the original 60s origin. They didn't play around at all with it, almost at all, other than obviously nationalities and things like that. It's just, it's a really strong origin. I was looking forward to watching the cartoon of this. I wanted to see the Marvel's superheroes origin and i guess it's because of the vietnam references that you know by 66 vietnam was a sore subject where here you could still get some glory out of going to vietnam they never even tried to adapt this though i can i was shocked to find that iron man's origin wasn't in a cartoon for like decades after this so it starts out with um, Tony Stark doing like a government demonstration for his his these transistors that he's developed which allow um, you to take something that's maybe smaller but give it as much power as it would have as it was in full form so the government's like oh this would be great because we could turn our mortars that are in south vietnam and in, in the war right now 
we can make them small enough for our troops to carry through the thick jungle. So, I mean, right off the bat, we're in the 60s. Like, it is, it's Vietnam, right? Well, but that's what's so, so interesting about this is so many of the stories that they're producing in this time period, they're like, we're going to have a computer, but it's going to be more powerful. It's going to be so much bigger. We're going to have a laser, and it's the size of a city. And this is one of the few instances where you've got a sci-fi hook that was true to the actual science. Miniaturization is where it was at, but that's not where they were thinking in the 60s. I'm really surprised at how far ahead they, this story was. And I'm sure it has to do with the needs of a superhero you need to be able to carry that stuff around with you but this is far and away ahead of a lot of the sci-fi that period just by thinking small instead of big so no i i totally agree so uh, you know so the next scene is they sort of set up who our main antagonist is going to be in this story and that's wong chu who's this uh vietnamese warlord in the village south vietnam so we cut to Tony Stark on the ground in Vietnam with the troops. So, of course, my, my cynicism, my first thought is, okay, what is he doing in Vietnam? Like, why would the rich guy who builds all this stuff be in Vietnam? And, and they almost immediately answer that question. He's there so that if anything breaks, since he's the smartest one, he's there to fix it. He's obviously going to be there temporarily. So he's there and he's watching the troops demonstrate this stuff. They get, they get attacked by some insurgents. They use their weapons. They work perfectly. And that's when the, the famous scene where his foot trips over the booby trap tripwire, explosion goes off, uh, assumingly kills everyone around him except for himself. He gets shrapnel lodged in close to his heart. Wong Chu's troops pick him up and say, hey, he's still alive. He may be valuable for us to us as a as a captor. Let's take him back to Wong Chu and see what's up. That's when they kind of discover who he is and Wong, and they kind of show a, a conversation, which, of course, the, the linguistics of our Vietnamese brothers out there in uh, in the 60s were not represented very well. They were very, they spoke like cavemen, kind of, which, you know, it kind of cringeworthy, but you know, it, it was the time, so kind of have to let it go. Don Heck, for the time period, I think is surprisingly sensitive in his illustration of the Asian characters. They're maybe overly accentuated to some degree, but compared to the stuff we were seeing from the 40s and 50s, it's it's pretty decent rendition. So it's a shame that everybody has to talk like Tonto Sosali. Yeah, oh yeah, all the, all the Russians spoke like that too. I mean, you know, I remember some of these issues where somebody's in the jungle fighting a guy, and they've got just the teeth are crazy exaggerated. Everybody's got monster Fu Manchus. It's not that bad in this comic. Uh, but again, the dialect's a little rough. So anyway, back to the origin. So they start talking about how, look, this dude's done for. We, we cannot operate on his uh, on his heart. But let's go ahead and tell him we can and use that as a, as a, hey, man, build this weapon for us while you're our captive. And if you can do it before you die, we'll have the surgeon come in and, and fix you up. So, of course, you're rolling your eyes at that, too. And before I can roll my eyes at that, Tony's word thought balloon is saying, these guys are full of crap. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, totally go along with it and then use all the equipment they give me to build a weapon and get out of here. So that's already like twice where I already tried to poke a hole in this just from being a cynic, and they got me like immediately. They, they sort of beat me to the punch. From there, the the, the story is, is a little bit the same. Dr. Yinsen, who's a, a famous physicist, comes in and helps out. But one thing that I do really like in the, this version of it, which has kind of changed in a few of the other versions I've seen, is that it's very much Tony Stark's idea. He's going to build this suit. It wasn't like Yin Sin came up with the idea and was like, oh, maybe we could build you a suit to keep you alive. Tony was already working on it. And then when Yin Sin comes in, he says, okay, the jig's up. If I have to work, if I can't work alone, I better at least tell him what I'm doing so he can help me out. Yeah, I, I like when you, you know, they try to go ahead and give the guys a little bit more to do in, in some stories. But with Tony, you really kind of want him to get 
the lion's share of the credit. I'm glad that Jensen helped him out. He obviously did some heroic stuff as the story progressed, but it is great that Iron Man is wholly Tony's. Right. So and what I did notice was was interesting is that he does refer to Vietnamese as terrorists at one point, which I was like, whoa, you know, when, when you see that word nowadays, it sort of means something else than it probably did back then. I thought that that was an interesting parallel that, of course, in the modern day retelling of the origin in Iron Man 1, they're Middle Eastern. So it's it, it, that, 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 that kind of led me to even, man, it really is a close translation in the movie. Obviously, it's not exactly, but even from reading the word terrorist back in the 60s, I'm still, I kind of get that feeling, man, they, the first movie was pretty true to it if you have to do an update that it's illogical it makes sense to change it to the middle east not because you just want to swap out races but because these are the guys that are are scary big bad guys in a foreign land currently right okay so from, from there yinsen and, and, and tony stark are building the armor they get just about completed their captors were going to come in and kind of before they were ready to present the weapon yinsen decides hey i have to stall runs out sacrifices himself so tony can have a few minutes to power the thing up and what i also loved was a great touch is even though this is a short story only about 14 pages long they do devote a couple panels as to once he gets power and he up in the suit he falls over a couple times as he's trying to teach himself how to work it which is again they they got me again because he's never ever operated an animatronic suit before but he's supposed to just boot this sucker up and start ninja kicking guys like that's another one of those just dumb things in comics but this was great he stood up and he fell down he even made a comment that he was walking like a toddler or um, i can't remember the exact phrase he used i'm like a baby learning to walk right which i thought was great because he's like a baby learning to walk he's born again right well and i love that sequence because like you said it subverts your expectations because you know the Yensen is off getting killed and Iron Man is in this invulnerable suit that just isn't there yet so he's just lying there completely helpless listening to his friend get gunned down and can't do a thing about it and then like you said usually the hero will rise up triumphantly and start smashing a wall and stuff and here it's like no man I gotta work this stuff out before I can do anything yeah exactly and then that's when the story and there was already a little bit of revengishness to it towards his captors but that was more sort of like he hated the communist side of it but I loved the thought balloon after he sort of kind of gets up he does like a jumping jack after he sort of gets the hold of it. And he says, kill the professor, a man who never harmed anyone in his life, murdering swine. They'll pay for it. I swear it. Iron Man swears it. Freaking awesome, dude. That is so awesome. From there, he pulls out like a trench coat and a hat. I don't know where he gets it from. But he uses that to kind of sneak around through the campus. Marvel had an incredible amount of belief in the trench coat and the hat as being the perfect disguise for people. Yeah, it, it works pretty well in Comicton. Nobody will ever suspect the guy in a full trench coat and hat hiding his face. One thing about the sequence, too, I, I just wanted to point out is that I'm so used to not being able to see Iron Man's eyes, him having a largely featureless face. But it's really humanizing to actually see his eyes past that mask. Get a greater sense of his emotions. Yeah, and he's got that kind of squint going. I, I, I just I love love that panel that panel jumped out I was like man how did i forget about that panel before that's a terrific panel it doesn't hurt too that tony stark is a sex bomb in parts of the story where he's running around in the black outfit looking like johnny castle and dirty dancing just like solid black man he worked that shit <laughs> that guy was a pimp i, I should say so after yinsen stalled and iron man got booted up they didn't barge in on him and he just beat them up, right? So what he'd done is he actually attached some suction cups to his hands and he used some thrusters that they built into the boots to kind of propel himself onto the roof and kind of Spider-Man to the roof while the guys came in and they're like, oh my God, he's gone, and they leap. And that's when he, so he doesn't just come in and start whipping up on him. So that's when he sneaks out, confronts Wong Chu, beats him down, uses what I guess would be the precursor to the repulsor ray where he turns his 
he reverses the magnetism on these guys' guns. So when they, they're trying to shoot at him and everything reverses away, they run off. Wong Chu hides, tries to tell all of his troops to go after and kill him with the speaker. And then Iron Man hacks the speaker and basically tells them that they all need to fear the Iron Man. Fear Iron Man. Everyone leave. Then he goes, he barges in, tries to confront Wong Chu. Wong Chu picks up a filing cabinet filled with rocks, throws it on him, which sort of incapacitates him. And Wong Chu says, okay, cool, dude. That was the single most contrived thing in the entire story is that he's got a rock drawer to throw at the guy. Look, man, like I've never been to Vietnam, so I don't know. Wong Chu says, that, okay, fine, you know, I'm going to go murder all of my captives now. Peace out. So he runs out and he gets ready to do that. So Iron Man uses most of the, what's left of his strength, the power in the suit, to get the file cabinet of rocks off of him. Chases after him. And as Wong Chu's running by an ammunition speed, he uses the self-lubricating oil in the armor, sprays it towards the depot, sets it on fire, blows the ammo depot up, killing Wong Chu. And that's sort of how the story ends. I like, too, how he had the, the little buzzsaw in his index finger that he managed to cut down one of the doors with. Again, the miniature this guy was so far in advance of everybody else in his time. Yeah, and he, he they even called it uh, compressed air thrusters, I think is what they um, what they called his little jet boots, but he used it to, uh, to suction cup to the roof. You could see all the little the, the nuggets there that were put in, because uh, gadgets ended up kind of, it's not a huge thing with Iron Man, but he does have his, his little gadgets. And then, which of course evolved into specialized suits. But it was, it's just cool to see it here, just from jump. He had he, he was already you know the little mini saws, the suction cups, yeah, the little flamethrower, the repulsor ray, reverse magnetic polarity. Stuff like that. I mean, you, you just get everything in this little 14 pages. I like, too, how they got in the, I'm low on power. I'm going to have to do this uh, Hail Mary pass, which is so, seems like an Iron Man staple now, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, that one pops up a lot. So anyway, I, after rereading it, I thought it was just a perfectly strong origin from art to story. Obviously, I, I have a bias. Going back, I didn't think it was going to be, you never meet your heroes, right? So I hadn't read the story in so long. I was kind of set up to be disappointed and have it be a little bit hokey. I didn't really think it was terribly hokey for a 1960, what was it, 63? I was expecting this story to be rough, and I was pleasantly surprised at how smooth and how entertaining it was. And, it, and it's quick. It's quick, but it's got, it's got words. It's not quick for lack of for dialogue. Oh, it's definitely got more story in it than an arc would these days. But especially after reading that Submariner story, the, the pace of this one is just on a different level from that story. So I think there's logical progression and a sense that somebody thought what they were going to do from page to page. You know, like maybe they actually had the whole story in mind and then wrote it down. All right, fix it. What'd you think, man? I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. I uh, love the artwork. The origins was, I would say, definitely strong, and I could see definitely the influence in the movie, the movie being influenced by this origin. Um, but he has a really good origin. I really like his origins, showing that even he would kill right off the bat. Yeah, that's true. He did. He, he didn't hesitate. He had to take that dude out. And yeah, boy, so- boy, did he. For some reason, I can't even tell you why I did it, but I randomly bought an issue of Iron Man off the newsstand in the early 90s. I believe it was during the run of John Byrne and Paul Ryan, and I think they retconned it so that he didn't die, and he was actually still active, and Iron Man had to fight him again. Yeah, I think I, I, that sounds familiar. I'm sure that happened. There have also been iterations that he was working for the Mandarin the whole time. You know, they, they always try and kind of retcon. Which is a shame, because one of the things that's great is that sometimes, well, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but it's sometimes you just need a thug. Sometimes you need to tell the hero's story, and you just need a generic guy for him to fight, and you don't need to bring all this mythology into it to muddy things up. Yeah, you don't have to tie everything together. Which uh, Didn't they do that with uh, Spider-Man, the, the thief that ends up killing Uncle Ben and Spider-Man? Didn't he end up being something else at some point? Yeah, I think they've done that in the past. It's terrible. It's it's just overcomplicates it. Just keep it, keep it simple, stupid. 
Uh, I just think if you've seen Iron Man 1 and you liked the origin, yeah, it's pretty close. Even down to the flamethrowers, because he used the flamethrower to blow up the ammunition depot. I mean, it's it's really close. But I'm not trying to ham it up. I was legitimately surprised at how much better this origin was than I remember it being. I was a little, I was a little worried. I wanted to look at at least one form of Iron Man's origin and animation. Since they didn't have it on the Marvel Superheroes show, I forgot all about the movie they made a few years ago that was directed to video and jumped to the 1994 animated series, the Iron Man animated series as part of the Marvel Adventure Hour or Marvel Action Hour or something like that. If you want to subject yourself to this... Uh, legally, I believe that Amazon, I mean, Amazon Instant has it available for $2 per episode, so you'd have to spend $4 on the episode. I'm not going to say that there's a free YouTube embed somewhere on the blog. I didn't upload that video, you know, but if you take a peek, you might see something underneath our player, so. Okay, but here, wait, let me butt in, because that's not what you're going to do. If you're going to go to YouTube and just see if someone's uploaded any of this stuff, don't find this origin and watch it. What you're going to look for instead is something called Iron Man, hypothetically, Iron Man 1994 TV series, 9-11, Attacks Tower and Pentagon Illuminati Symbolism. What the fuck? Because this is, you're going to freak out. And I vaguely remember this. So in there's an episode of that 1994 Iron Man series where it leads off with the Mandarin's forces attacking the World Trade Center in New York, and then he draws out a plan to crash another plane into the Pentagon. I swear to God, I am not making this up. So somebody took splices of that episode and pieced it together with actual 9-11 stills. Uh, it's only like two minutes long, but you're going to watch it and like your jaw's going to drop because it's like it's kind of creepy. 1994, Iron Man, very influential cartoon apparently over in the Middle East. Let's do no, Let's not don't use the word influential for God's sake. Let's not use that for particular word i think that you can make anything anything with enough editing so you will we'll see about that video and uh, then never discuss this ever again okay i know you're gonna say i'm gonna turn anything and anything go watch the video and you're gonna see there is no uh, nuance in what occurs in this issue in this episode it is literally what i described it as occurs very very strange coincidence and that's the word i'm gonna use coincidence coincidence yes uh so we found a little two-part crossover that happened in, I believe it was in 1989. This is from Iron Man number 247 in October of 1989. And Incredible Hulk, Hulk number 361. Incredible Hulk. Incredible Hulk number 361. That tells you a lot about Mac right there. From uh, November 1989. Um, so, alright, I guess we can just start off by talking about why the hell do we like these two characters. I know we kind of went over these briefly in our uh, our origin stories in episode number one, but I think we could probably flesh out a little bit more that it's not just the characters we like, but we I think we also, you know, we have our favorite creative teams and whatnot, too. What aspects of the character? I mean, the characters are always evolving, and it's nice to see there are different uh, takes on them. Right, and, and it's funny, during this two-parter, um, we get one of the aspects of Iron Man that I hate, and one of the aspects that you like the best. Oh, yeah, Fix-It was my all-time favorite. Hulk. So, at this point in these characters' lives... Hulk in full Grey Hulk, Joe Fix-It. Leg-breaking mafia style. Full-on uh, Hulk for hire. And Iron Man has recently been shot 
by a uh, psycho lover who was shot in the chest, ended up uh, hitting his spinal cord, so he's paralyzed, floating around a la Professor X. X. Yes. Professor, I, know, I thought the exact same as thing. As you, well, as soon as you see a combo character in a wheelchair, the first thing you say is Professor X. But um, <laughs> The standard. Kathy Dare was the name of the psycho that shot him. So, yeah, it was a real happy time. Well, let's be honest. It's a little bit of a whiny. We're, we're, I think he had been shot maybe five issues before this. So you went through the whole, you know, trying to save his life because he got pretty close to death. And then he kind of comes to grips with the fact that he's not paralyzed. So the former uh, handsome playboy Tony Stark is now confined to a wheelchair as a cripple. So Was this supposed to be like the catching up to him? Is his past lifestyle was catching up to him? No, not necessarily. I mean, the, it, it was... Well, because you read this stuff, right? I mean, did, yeah. they, lead, did they kind of lead up to that? No, but he was basically... This, the chick who shot him, Kathy Dare, was a straight-up stalker. Like, it, it went really fatal attractions where, okay. at one point, she came out and she was trying to say that, even though Tony Stark was, like, ignoring her, she came out in, in the press and said that, like, uh, she was his, or he was her fiancé and all this stuff, and he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And apparently, he spurned her enough times that then she snuck into his house um, and shot him. Wow. Like she, Everything, so he, every other supervillain could not pull off, yet crazy bitch could. Hey, man. <laughs> Well, uh, there's some things about the women's anatomy that they say is undefeated. So, uh, and the key had, to a man's heart. Yes, and they had hooked up at one point, which is why she went, you know, fell crazy in love with him, whatever. And of course, he, he dropped the D on her. Yeah, well, Tony Stark uh, did that occasionally. Um, so anyway, she ended up being institutionalized. So, you know, Iron Man went to some weird places. But he was very whiny. Like I said, at this point, he was really like, "Oh, I'm in this wheelchair. What was me?" You yeah, know? Um, definitely that Iron Man episode issue. He's just wah wah, you know. Oh, get me into this monstrosity of a chair and change. It's just, you know, right. it's kind of whiny. Well, but again, he was he was paralyzed, so whatever. Was, uh, this it, is after his alcoholic stage, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. This is way after that. Um, but this is, you know, he he's always you always have the Tony Stark battles, and you always had the Iron Man battles. This was the one where Tony Stark was going through a rough spot, and being in the armor, he was able to walk. No. So, he was going to the armor for sanctuary, so he would basically, he was spending very little time out of the armor, because he couldn't walk otherwise. He hated to be in that chair. Um, I mean, it, it, it's just another, you know, the, these characters have been around for decades, so you run into these spots. Well, I mean, honestly, in these books, they did have a cool uh, combination of villains, which I really liked. They uh, they definitely brought out villains that I felt that Tony Stark would be fighting on a regular basis. And, yeah. So um, the other interesting thing about these two issues, before we get into the plot and what we actually felt about the story, that I thought was uh, was interesting was that these are really two of the classic creative teams to work on these two books. So, for instance, the Iron Man issue has Dave Michelini and Bob Layton, who are basically the the fathers of all good Iron Man stories. They did the Demon in the Bottle stuff. Uh, they did the Armor Wars, they did the, the Doom crossover, the Doom Quest crossover, which I'd like for us to touch on eventually, because those are that's good stuff. Um, and then for the Hulk side, we have Peter David and Jeff Purvis. And Jeff and, and uh, Peter David literally wrote the Bible for the Hulk. I mean, right. I personally love 99% of all the stuff he wrote for the Hulk, where he took him. And Jeff Purvis, I mean, was just a, a nice little artist to pop in and just really just... Make the Hulk ugly, and that persona of him that's supposed to be dark and ugly and twisted kind of really gave it a little bit of life. Though they did kind of pull back a little bit, but even you can look at it. I mean, he's his head's a little square. He's he's a little smaller. His eyes he looks a little more devious. So you know, I really I really did enjoy him. It was it was a shame he only lasted nineteen episodes or issues. 
Yeah, and Pur- Purvis really brought a super. You know, it was funny because I think he fought. He followed McFarland, right? Yeah, right after. So, McFarlane. um, McFarland's Hulk wasn't exactly uh, like Gary Frank's attractive Hulk. I mean, he was pretty jacked up too. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're right, and I guess that's where he got there from. But of course, he did the dumb Hulk. The, yeah, this Hulk. This Hulk. I mean, you have him running around in you know thousand uh, dollar trench coats as he likes to state and. He's definitely a leg breaker, you know, mafia top, mafioso type. Yeah, but Purvis is a super unique artist. You're, you're not gonna, no, you're not gonna mistake his artwork for somebody else. For any, right? It, for anybody it's very else. close to McFarlane, a little Art Adams, maybe a little Dale Keown. Like they all kind of. Uh, I don't know about Keown. You don't think so? No. Uh, but it's it's real dirty and gritty. Like you said, he, Hulk looks like just like a big ass cinder block. Like he he looks he looks super cool. Um... Yeah, so I've always been a fan of Purvis. I know a lot. Some people don't, but uh, I, I think it's it's really good stuff. And they're also Bob Layton and Purvis are basically the opposites of one another. Where Bob Layton, everything is super clean and shiny. Uh, you know, the, the armor just glistens. I mean, there's just reflections all over his armor all the time. And then you get to Purvis, and Purvis's Hulk is just dirty and grimy. I mean, even Bob Layton. He's got a, he's got a great Grey Hulk on the cover of this, but that's yeah. a clean ass Grey Hulk. Like that's yeah. clean. And then you flip over to the Purvis side, like you said, he's got the squinty eyes and the big old blockhead. Um, it's just funny the contrast. Oh, white gloves. I'm I'm not I'm not quite grasping the white gloves, but well, <laughs> he wants to keep clean. That's right. You don't want to leave any prints when you're out doing jobs for the mob. I guess we can go ahead and start with the the story themselves. I mean, it kind of starts out where Iron Man is being he's out up on the North Pole. And he's meeting with the heads of Hydra and AIM because they're being currently attacked by another criminal organization called the Magia. Magia's head by, head by uh, Madame Mask, who was a big character in Iron Man comic books. Whitney Frost was the original Madame Mask, who Iron Man had a thing with. We're not going to go too far into that. At this point, uh, Whitney Frost has been murdered, um, and there's a new Madame Mask that's the head of Magia. So... Or Magia, I don't know how to pronounce these things. It's all in words, so we don't ever know how they're pronounced. So they both meet with Iron Man, hey, Aim and Hydra, and they both say, "Hey, we know you can get to Madame Mask. Go get her and bring her to us." Uh, and and he was like, "Why the hell would I help Aim and Hydra? That's ridiculous." So he's like, "Peace, I'm out of here." So then the what's the the main scientist supreme, the head of Aim's, oh, yeah. you know, scientist says, "Don't worry, I think I know someone else that can help us." Right. So that's sort of foreshadowing who they have an idea. At this point, they call in Mr. Fixit, and Mr. Fixit says, all right, um, so what's the deal? And they're like, we want you to go capture Madame Mask, and what we're going to do is we're going to basically wipe her memory so that she forgets why she's going to town on AIM and HYDRA. So basically, AIM and HYDRA, they're normally enemies. They used to be the same organization. They split. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the whole thing is, why are these two guys trying to work together? And they're trying to work together because Magia is trying to destroy them both. So yeah. they're like, alright, let's call a little truce and figure out what the hell's going on. So, they figure out the best way to get Magia to stop coming after both of them is to just wipe Madam Mask's memory, um, and since she's the head, she'll stop them coming after him. So, uh, Joe Fixit's basically like, okay, whatever, don't care. Just You're gonna give me cash or not? Yeah, like, yeah pretty much that. Okay, yeah, you're gonna get boatloads of cash, just go cash. He gets out there, he crashes into her, uh, this is out in Las Vegas, he crashes her warehouse, uh, literally at one point, bitch back, slaps her. Bitch slaps, slaps her, like backhands her, uh, grabs her and flies off. 
jumps through the roof. They hop and and I guess she's got a, a microchip on her mask where they can track her. Yeah. So they can track her. Just so, you know, not your grandfather's Hulk. Hulk yeah. usually would not bitch slap like this. Wouldn't just straight up <laughs> smack a hoe. And he does like it's like it's not even five. He isn't trying like. Hey, let me subdue her first. She starts talking to him, and he just like smacks her and knocks her off. Drops a little baby powder on his hand, and just goes to town. So, which again is probably why he's wearing the glove. <laughs> so, um, what do you got? So, Iron Man shows up to the warehouse shortly afterwards. The reason why Iron Man had showed up to the warehouse where Madame Mask was right before Hulk uh, took her was that Iron Man wanted to go after Madame Mask, not for Hulk and AIM, but because he's trying to get to the bottom of who killed Whitney Frost, the original Madame Mask. That's his motivation for going after Mask. And he's like, hey, where's Madame Mask at? And they're like, she just got took, bro. <laughs> but like, so he's like, well, how do I find her? So that's where they reveal that she's got a microchip in her mask that they can tag and follow. So he just follows the Magia trucks going to find her. So as soon as he gets there... Well, he goes after her. They have her tied into the chair or the table that's going to drain her memory. They basically go, they give the Hulk the money and it's like, beat it. And she had some kind of robots called Dreadnoughts, I believe. Yeah, Dreadnoughts were um, Magia's and Madame Mask sort of protectors. They're awesome-looking robots. Yeah. They don't get a lot of play in the Marvel Universe outside Iron Man's books, but they have, like, diamond-coated spikes all over their bodies and stuff. They look really, really awesome. Well, apparently a truck drops off, like, a dozen of them. Right, well, that's what was in the trucks that Tony Stark, or Iron (laughs) Man, was was flying after. Um, The doors open up, and all those Dreadnoughts come out to go after and get her. And then, of course, you get the Joe Fixit art critique of a sculpture in the hallway as he goes, looks like a six-year-old made it. And then it punches the shit out of her. <laughs> because he's like, hey, it looks like it's moving. And then it knocks him <laughs> in the face. So, so that's Hulk, how we drag the Hulk in. Hulk gets to trash a bunch of dreadnoughts as Iron Man shows up. And he starts, he gets, you know, jumps in there. He's like, wait, Hulk, hold on. And then Hulk, Hulk doesn't give a shit. Hulk doesn't care. and literally smashes <laughs> these into pieces. He's like, uh, never mind. <laughs> I think he says that at yeah, one point. Yeah, he's like, uh, never mind. Iron Man jumps in, frees Madame Mask, who... Of course, before he can um, question her, like, sort of stuns him for a second. And then she's with Beats it out the door. She's yeah. gone. Uh, Hulk, standing there with his huge ransom that he got, uh, gets zapped by a dreadnought, destroys his uh, trench coat, which I believe he says cost about a G or something <laughs> like that. Spent about a grand on it. Um, so he blew up his trench coat and then also vaporized the, the money. money he just got. So he gets pissed off, smashes that dude. At which point you uh, you'll see the Hulk walking, and he commits a robbery as he smashes a window to steal a coat and gently fade into the dark. And right. Tony, I guess that's when Tony right consults so, the FBI. Right. So then the FBI, which Iron Man had sort of and Tony Stark had sort of foreshadowed earlier that it seemed like the FBI had been working with the Magia, and you weren't really sure why. So this computer screen comes on, and it's one of the heads of the FBI standing there with Madame Mask. And he's like, what the hell's going on? Why do you guys keep helping them? And he reveals, well, hey, we decided if there's three bad crime organizations that we're having to fight, it's a lot easier to just partner with one that can eliminate the other two, and then we've only got the Magia to worry about, which sounds actually fairly reasonable. Yeah, as long as we you know, take, keep a blind eye to some other crime. Right, exactly. In which Iron Man's like, oh, that's cool, man. Hey, that's cool. But guess what? I just recorded this whole conversation. You just got Linda tripped. So <laughs> you just got Linda tripped. That's pretty good. Uh, so, but yeah, he's straight up Linda tripped. <laughs> Blue dress and all, baby. <laughs> and uh, so what he got? So he, the next little sequence of panels is just sort of wrapping up that it's got the president demolishing uh, the FBI's activities oh, and yeah. some rogue agents that went through this. Yada yada yada. Anyway. Fast forward, now we get to the Hulk episode. Because, as we should say, is it fades out after the Hulk stole that trench coat. 
he said he's got to try and find a way to make this trip worth it. Yeah, right? which they then uh, hint at, if you want to know what the Hulk did, go to issue 361 of The Incredible Hulk. So, that's what we going to do. So, in this issue, we come across... Of course, the, the mob is pissed off because there's someone going around Vegas kicking the shit out of everybody, and nobody can figure out who it is. They just know it's some guy named Fix-It. Fix-It keeps popping up. And of course, as they're talking about this, you know, Joe does a visit. And again, you look at this great Purvis artwork of Fix-It holding two mobsters that I'm pretty sure he murdered. I don't know, I don't know about knocked out, but when you have men, gra- you know, you're holding men like that, they might be dead. And he's coming knocking to... Uh, Basically, Fixer was a gun for hire in all the, uh, the books when he was in Vegas. I mean, you paid him, and he went, and he hurt whoever you told him to hurt. Um, this one, though, we find out is a little bit, again, foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Uh, Joe's there. He scares the shit out of the mob, and lo- oh, all of a sudden... It's, it's not just the mob. This is the Magia headquarters yeah, in, in Los Magia. Angeles. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, Iron Man pops up and starts fighting the Hulk. Why? Well, we don't know yet, but we're going to find out. So they're going back and forth. Basically, Iron Man... Was it Repulsor Ray? Yeah, he's Repulsor Ray. Knocks the Hulk out of the building, and he's. Um, of course, Iron Man then takes off. Well, no, he doesn't take off yet. Well, so, no, no, he's trying to take off, but the mobsters are trying to kind of make a deal with them. But I guess Tony so being Tony, they, they basically say, "Okay, so now we got this guy fix it. Who's going through wrecking all these Magia operations?" And at the end of the Iron Man issue, I forgot to mention this too. Tony Stark steps down from Stark Enterprises. Again, we don't need to get into all that. It's not that big a deal. So, but but the monster says, "Hey, I know your boss just stepped down from Stark Enterprises. You're going to need some extra cash. What if we give you a million bucks to go hunt down uh, the Hulk?" Which, yeah. of course, I may had to inform them. Yes, that was the Hulk. He's not green and dumb anymore. Yeah, he's gray and smart. And they're like, "Holy crap, he's gray and smart. How are we going to stop him?" Yeah. One sure. monster points out, "Well, Iron Man just stopped him. How about um, we tell you how the original Madam Mask was killed?" That's actually information I was trying to get in the previous issue. So he's like, okay, I want both the cash and I want to hear it from Madame Mask herself what happened to Whitney Frost, the original Madame Mask. And the guy's like, well, I don't know if we can really get that done. And he's like, all right, fine, then uh, I'm out of here. And he's like, he says, you have until tomorrow to broadcast over yeah. some frequency what your decision is. At this point, he flies back to Stark Enterprises, where he comes across Joe Fixit waiting outside. Now, of course, he walks up to shake Joe's hand, see if he's okay. Fix it, smacks his hand around. He's a little upset, but of course, Iron Man says, you know, what's your problem? You know, why'd you have to basically fix it? Is upset that he got repulsor, he got repulsor right. And, you know, Iron Man is basically saying, hey, we had to make it look legitimate. You know, they're basically pulling a Ocean's 13 here. You know, they're, they're, they're tricking, they're, they're fooling the mob to get, you know, information, money. Or Ocean's 11, because it was much better than Ocean's 13. Yeah, 12 was okay. I don't even so, remember this fucking stupid-ass movies. <laughs> Why did you bring these stupid-ass movies up? I don't know, dude. I'm just on the You see, you, right you had me with Linda Tripp, and now we... <laughs> and I've lost you now. lost that. me with the Oceans movies. Damn you, ADD. All right, continue. So anyway, so Joe Fix-It leaves, and of course, it's time to break, break out the, the cheese, because here comes some whiny Tony. Some yeah. truly whiny Tony. So whiny Tony follows us over this incredible Hulk issue. There's a little exchange talking about how, man, how can I be a millionaire playboy when I'm stuck in a, a wheelchair? To which fantastic line from my friend Bruce Banner, he spins his wheelchair around and says, Tony, don't ever, ever presume to trade sob stories with me, which is terrific, right? Because that's, that's what the Hulk does. The Hulk is the, or Bruce Banner has the worst life ever. All right. Of course. So he's like, don't tell me about, 
you know, how women don't like you anymore and how your life is ruined. Because I don't want to hear about that. Yeah. Been doing that eggs don't work. As Tony and, and Bruce are sort of arguing about, you know, how difficult it is to be Tony right now because his legs don't work, Bruce says, you know, he's at the motivation that, uh, I guess this time in the whole comics, Betty's pregnant. He's got to keep it together because he's got to find Betty, and he's got to, you know, one day he's going to be bouncing that baby boy on his leg, right? Or because he can feel that it's going to be a boy, right? Yeah. So, so I think that was a good touch. So of course here, the the thing that's really unusual about the Fixit character is at night. That's when that Hulk. It's not where Banner gets mad and Hulk hulks out. It's more kind of a Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, daytime, nighttime. So of course this is all happening during daytime. As it's slowly becoming nighttime, the fixed persona starts to slowly ink, come out, come alive more, and they're going back and forth. And of course, Bruce is having this big discussion with Fixit about trying to get this plan put together. And of course, Tony's sitting in an Iron Man suit watching this, and he's like, "Holy shit!" He's having two conversations and literally morphing back and forth while having these conversations. So yeah, wah wah, Tony, my legs don't work. Try being two different fucking dudes in one body. So they're changing back. Iron Man's watching this, and of course, if you get a chance to look at this issue of Hulk, uh, 361, I do recommend page 18. Purvis did a fantastic job of just a few panels of the Hulk, or fix it, morphing back and forth. So you have this very grotesque, I mean, Hulk is not a pretty creature when he, when one fix it as uh, the persona. So and he's you, shorter, he's smaller, and you can imagine the morphing of the human body into the Hulk and vice versa could not be a pretty thing. And Purvis does this great job of of, and he's sort of in like these sort of in between Banner Hulk shots, and it's just he's just sort of melting and then reforming and sort of melting. And Iron Man's sitting there staring at him like, what? the hell just happened? And Very he, cool stuff. Very yeah, very so cool stuff. that's kind of a cool visual that Purvis threw in there. No, the, the broadcast goes out. Madam Mask says, all right, let's 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 get this done. You bring us the Hulk, and we're going to give you the information and the money. So, cool. It's on. Let's go meet up. They show up. Of course, there's two dreadnoughts there. But, of course, someone kind of notices, hey, why do we have two? Aren't we only supposed to have Don't one have here? One, which you can kind of see where this is going. Yeah. And he seems like a little bit of a stockier, wider dreadnought. <laughs> and of course, fix it in his famous bitch slappiness, bitch slaps a dreadnought to death and rips out of the suit and says, go on, say it. It's incredible. Great dialogue, as always. Of course, Iron Man grabs the cash, throws it to fix it, which fix it is there for purely. Yeah. Um, Trying to count the cash, and then here comes my again our favorite villains, Hydra and AIM, ready to do battle. Um, again, I, I, I they, like they've been waiting in the wings, yeah, uh, for, for them to crash this party, and then so they basically used Iron Man and Hulk to lead them to the Magia and Madame Mask. And again, I, I think they're two really cool science groups that I think really should be something tone or. Iron Man takes on their technology. Their he, he does a lot with aim, not a lot with Hydra. Really? Hydra, you know, Hydra's more cap. Cap, true. That's true. So, of course, one of my favorite my favorite pages is page twenty four, where the Hulk lands with the case of money. This time, smart enough to put it, the money in someone else's hands, grabs the billboard, tells him to hold the cash. I'll be back. At which point, of course, Iron Man has gone after Madam, captures her. All out, there's fighting. Hulk's going Hulk nuts. Everybody's punching and. Kicking another great one where Hulk grabs Iron Man, swings him like a baseball bat. So now we're at the end of the issue. After obviously Madame Mask gets, away. she escapes. He still doesn't ever learn what happens to Whitney Frost. Uh, Banner, 
I mean, or Mr. Fix-It gets his foot, he gets his money back from Bellboy, gives him a little tip. No, he doesn't. Actually, no, you misread that. He uh, takes the money out, Fix-It touches him on the shoulder and says, hey, when I got the money back, felt a little light, about a grand light. Guy hands him the cash. Of course, that's when you know Fix is all about the money. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty much that ends it. Of course, we have one more little quick... Little wrap-up scene with Bruce talking to Tony, telling... And so he says, oh, I'll keep calling in to see if you found Betty. I really appreciate it, Tony. It means a lot. And you see Tony looking at a computer screen. It says, St. Vincent's Hospital patient record, Elizabeth Banner, released May 5th after miscarriage, no forwarding address. So then, okay, so Tony Stark says, believe me, Bruce, I know how important your wife and child's welfare are. To you, I won't let you down. Goodbye, Bruce. And he's got like this, you know, terrible look on his face knowing that... Man, this dude, I, I do need to shut up about my legs not working because Bruce Banner has the worst life ever. And see, Machine, that's how it's done. Yeah, I'm <laughs> behind. Also heard, uh, also heard the Drax, although I do like the new look for Drax. I'm a bit bummed that four-parter was weak. I'll still read it, though. Best thing about the art... God damn it. I didn't do this. Did you hear me just do that? What? It's like I get cotton mouth whenever we talk and I'll... Yeah, you do that pop. I God, have to take that I out of the I fucking hate episode. that shit, The dude. good thing is it's very visible. It's this long black yeah. line. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was trying it. to chop yeah. them out too because then now I have to fucking edit it. Now I'm like, God, you motherfucker. How many asshole. times did you have to take the word right out? I didn't take right out at all. You have to take any right outs? Okay, I didn't, I didn't notice, but like... it's. it's I was going to start short. taking his... Um, now what My the fuck did you keep saying? No, he kept saying... Now obviously... Now, obviously, now, obviously... Uh, he doesn't well, do that that often. He did it like a thousand times. Literal, now, all three of us are literally, literally, literally... literally. One, and now, the one thing I do too much of is, no, but no. Like, you'll I say haven't something, really caught that, I no. I do that, dude. They call me out at work about that. I haven't Why heard that. Why you always say no? Why you always tell me no? I try, I've spent hours editing this shit, so I know a lot of those uh. words. I've never cut that out of you, no. Either that or we talk over you and drown it out, and I just never heard it. Yeah, fuck you on that one, too. <laughs> All right, our next comment comes from Eternal Rage. This is on our Iron Man is Born episode. Uh, and he <laughs> leads it off with, My most hated of superheroes. This will be a chore to listen to, but it'll be enjoyable nonetheless. You hooked me at vibrating Iron Man through the whole... <laughs> oh, my God. Through the whole <laughs> of the origin. I left hard at Max's reaction. Thanks. Keep it up. Uh, it was a damn good time. Totally had me and my fr- Totally how me and my friends converse a lot of the time having the same outcome. So, yeah... And I want people to understand that was a 100% ambush on me. <laughs> I had no clue we were going to. Li- I was all jazzed up that we're going to talk about Iron Man's origin. I got these two fucks to read Tales of Suspense 39, which I, thought, I never thought in a million years I'd get these two clowns to read this comic book. And we sit down to have a, a semi serious discussion about my character, and you lead it off with that bullshit. When have we ever had a serious conversation <laughs> well, you, you in the 20 you know plus years I've known you? Well, I'm still learning this whole podcast game. Yeah, we've never had a serious conversation. <laughs> I, I can think of. I thought we were going to. I think uh, uh, close to serious as we've ever gotten is what we're going to eat for dinner tonight. I'm, okay, so I'm still pretty upset about that. <laughs> I don't know if I I'm still upset. I didn't want anybody to think that we freaking staged that shit. I oh, had no. no freaking clue this clown was going to talk about how the opening splash page is Iron Man vibrating through a vagina. <laughs> and I've seen that page a million fucking times, man. And you cannot see it. I, yeah, you cannot see it. And the probe. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was so much fun. You guys suck. <laughs> Dude, I'm hey, throwing that on a t-shirt for you. Payback. I'm throwing, you that, I'm throwing that on a t-shirt for you. You know what? I actually think I had that. 
on a t-shirt? a t-shirt? I think I had that t-shirt. Remember the, the t-shirt I got from you at previews? You, you what, had how, a, how low did it wait, hang? Wait, dude, did you literally have a t-shirt of a JJ <laughs> walked around? I'm trying to remember which, uh, because, oh, God, okay, JJ. so, hey guys, we're, so we're going to talk about what it used to be like. A lot of you who have been comic book fans for a long time are going to understand this. You used to not be able to go get superhero shirts at Target. Right, so if you had access to a previews because you were like a legit comic book fan, you always had the best shirts ever. So I that you didn't wear in public, right? Like so, yeah, I they were all from graffiti <laughs> designs for the most part. Right. So like I had the Punisher skull shirt that you see everywhere now. I had the Punisher skull shirt that when it was offered in previews back in 1998, and when I showed up in that shit to school, people were like, "Holy shit, that's the Punisher!" And now you can the Punisher skull is like. At Target. Freaking saturated everywhere. You can get the fucking neon green glow-in-the-dark bullshit one at oh, Walmart. Wait, wait. And they're all stylized My. now and crap, and it's just like, it's super-duper lame. So anyway, but, like, so Previews had this awesome, it was a gray shirt, um, and, and it had the original classic, or er, original gray armor. Um, I don't know if it was that page or not. No, I think I it might have been that page. page. But since it was about. a gray shirt, they didn't have to color Iron Man because it, it was the same color as the shirt. It was a pretty cool, it was a kick-ass shirt. My, my favorite story still when I first met... Frank here at his shop, and he was super skinny back in the day, and he bought himself the Captain America shirt. The one that was like exactly like, like the, the suit, basically. Yeah, and he put it on, and I said, hey, look, it's Steve Rogers, and he took it right back off and put it for sale. <laughs> uh, we you're had, right, you're right. Oh, that we was such fun. fun. We had fun. Yeah. All right, our next, um, oh, I hate you guys. Comments done. Comment, well, you got them all. Yeah. So yeah, all we got to do is get... Uh, Mr. Fix-It to read that. Twitter. Fuck. You do this. I'm gonna it's, take. You just re- read it like an auctioneer. Just burn through it. It takes fucking literally like a minute. You it just takes. have to fucking just burn through it. I do it. You, if you learn, you've heard the podcast. You hear me burn through it. I'm like, you'll pair. So, yeah. The problem is that he's never seen any of these uh, Twitter handles before. Okay. Yeah. So just don't read the parts where the ads. You know, just read the part before the ad. Don't read the stuff after the ad. You're still recording the same uh, file? Okay, yeah. good. Do you want to do it? Yeah, I guess. Thank you. Well, now you sound like you're not, you sound like you're all upset, whereas before you were all like, "Oh, I can't read anything," and now he's gonna let you read something. Now you're getting all upset about. It. No, I mean I'll do it. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Here you go. Good man. Now I got it. Right now. So it's gonna be. Oh fuck! There's a lot. It's just words, though. There's like two word na- handles. So where do I start at? At the top here. Who's the first one? First you just say this, then Eternal Rage is following us on this, and then you say and our Google Plus follows, or blah, 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 and then our Twitter follows, or blah, blah, blah. So Eternal Rage is now following Rolling Spine Podcast WordPress blog. Yeah, except that you managed to screw up the name of our fucking podcast. <laughs> what I got? You call it Rolling Spine. Oh, Rolling Spine, my bad. Okay. New Twitter follows include Bronze Age Babies, Captain Kringle, Milk the Cow, and The Punisher at It's Not Revenge. Twitter favorites came from Charlton Hero, Chris William, CJ, Count Druncula, David Golding Artist, Eel Perrin, Eternal Rage, Firestorm Fan, Future Primitive, Knowing Flame Comics, Kyle Benning, Milk the Cow Podcast, Movie Pilot News, Plug-In Podcast, Professor Riptide, Siskoid, Sin, Top 5 Road Crew, and We Are Wakanda. Retweets came from Ange, Between the Pages, Charlton Hero, CJ, Count Druncula, Eternal Rage, Firestorm Fan, Future Primitive, Wano Man, Kyle Benning, Milk the Cow Podcast, Professor Riptide, Siskoid, 
Sin, Top 5 Road Crew. Happy holidays, everybody. Okay. We're done. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. I talked a little bit, but I didn't talk as much as I would if I had done any of that. Oh, Smokey. I'm going to export. I've done this once or twice. Um, yeah, that's pretty should be about it. What is your favorite Rob Reiner movie? Which one? What is your favorite Rob Reiner movie? Rob Reiner? Mm -hmm. Director Rob Reiner? Yeah. Like Meathead, Meathead yeah. Princess, Princess Bride? Movie? Princess Bride. He did that one, right? He did that one. He did do that one. Whoa, it, very nice. Is that your final answer? Yeah. I go with Princess Bride. Nevermore. Wait, what does he say when he's rolling down the hill? Oh, uh, as you yes. What about you, Mac? My favorite Rob Reiner movie is what someone would say if they were trying to stall while they went on IMDb. <laughs> I'm already on IMDb, man. Here's right here. So then apparently he's not a favorite if he has to look it up. Well, no, well, you can have a favorite Rob Reiner favorite. movie without Rob Reiner being a favorite director. I was reading a, an article on a website where they were talking about the decline of Rob Reiner, where he was great up until about North, and then starting with North, he just played it safe and stopped doing interesting movies anymore. And I think there was one exception that he was able to point to, but otherwise, you know, all the later stuff was bad. But he had that run there in the 80s where he was one of the top directors. Yeah, well, Stand uh, Harry Met Sally. Yeah, Misery. Sleepless in Seattle. He produced Misery. No, he didn't, didn't do Sleepless in Seattle. Did he direct Misery also? That was uh, Nori Ephron. Oh. So let's see. We got Stand By Me, Princess Bride. This is Man, Spinal he, Tap. He had a run. Spinal Tap and then The Sure Thing, which I don't know what that is. And then Stand By Me, oh, Princess Bride, movie? When Harry Met, Sa when Harry met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and then it oh, stopped. Oh, yeah, I forgot about A Few Good uh, yeah. Men. That's a good one, too. But The Princess Bride is just a cute movie. Yeah, probably Princess Bride. And you know, When Harry Met Sally is one of my favorite movies, period. So I have never seen When Harry Met Sally. I saw it at a very bad time because I was a teenager with an unrequited love. And uh, it was funny because my brother and I were going to, I think it was a dollar show. And it was one of those instances where I just decided, no, I want to see this movie. You go see whatever you want to see. I want to see this movie. And he refused to see a romantic comedy with me. So I'm going to watch it. <laughs> I and wonder then, why. Yeah, and then as I'm watching it, you know, I'm in like the last reel. And he comes down. He's like, you know, Dad's here. We gotta go. And I'm like, I'm gonna finish my movie. You get the hell out of here. I'm finishing my movie. So he leaves, and then I, and I, sometimes I think he might have just dropped time. He might have gotten bored and decided to call him and figured, well, the movie's probably gonna be done by net, by the time Dad gets here, so he'll he'll just pick us up. So he leaves, and then I'm done with the movie, and I come out, and it's cold. It's winter, and it's just you know, and I'm just standing in front of a movie theater, cold as fuck, feeling all down because you know I don't have what they had in that movie. So it was always kind of a point with me. It's like I, that stuck with me in a way or that kind of carried with me. You know that's make-believe, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that yeah, kind but, of love is well, unrealistic. No, well, no, I, it's actually, still I don't real know that me, movie it is. You've seen the movie, right? Yes. I don't know if that's really all that unrealistic. It's a little unrealistic. They're friends, well, just the, the, because of the, how long it takes for them to get together. So whatever female friend you have now, just wait 20 years and that'll be the love of your life. Nah, nah, nah. nah. Well, that, it, it just, it's not relevant <laughs> that now. That sounds like a man who's already defeated. Yeah. No, it's, you got to understand, though, it's what you felt in that time. You know, that movie came out when I was in my teens, so I'm in a different place than I was, but you still hold the memories. So the movie still has a strong nostalgic feel for me. Plus, I think it's still a reasonably funny movie, and it, it does, you think it says some interesting things about men and women. So it still works for me as an adult. 